This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hello, I'm Marissa. Hi, I'm Evan. We're going to talk about Misadjustment by Philip K. Dick. This is first published in Science Fiction Quarterly, February 1957. Uh, relatively hard to get magazine. And the story didn't get another English publication until the 80s, I believe. Um, it's not well-loved, I guess, uh, by many folks. Although, I think this is a pretty damn good story. Um, it's not, you know, among his very, very best, but it's definitely very interesting, I think. And it has... Um, a number of elements that I think are really just interesting sort of in his other works, but also you guys get the sense that this was the X-Men. <laughs> you guys no, know no, the uncanny no. X-Men yeah. story? I didn't get... Well, it's tied to his other post-human yeah, yeah. stories, which like, I still think someone should like line up all those post-human stories and... and you know, come up with his three laws of post-humans, come up, <laughs> like, pull all that out, because yeah. it changes over the course of his career, the nature of the post-human. You call them um, post-humans, but uh, aren't they properly, more properly mutants? Because um, he, well, he has I'm a mutant. Well, I'm building up the Golden Man. I, I think in Golden Man, you have a pure post-human. Yeah, and some and, of and that identifies stuff. Like that's part of the change. Like early on in his career in the in the fifties, he wrote about mutants who really become something that's not human anymore in some essential way. And then they he plays with different types, and their humanity is tossed around a little bit by by the novels. By the sixties novels, the precog is just like anyone else, just working a job. Like in the three stigmas, Palmer Eldridge. That, that's my favorite example of that. And the three stigmata Palmer Eldridge, the precog has been reduced to someone predicting fashion trends. <laughs> right? But, um, yeah, I, I, I use that term post-human as kind of a general label for it. But um, some of them are just mutants, I guess. Well, uh, how, These, I don't know. I don't know where it categorizes them. I think... It, it, well, they're, they're not—they're not mutually exclusive. I think posthumans are really—that's sort of the science fiction term for, for uh, the what, what I'm thinking of as comic book phenomena. Did, did anybody else read the 1980s, uh, late 1970s, early 1980s, mid 80s uh, X-Men, yeah, Uncanny X-Men? Nope. Yes. Not really. So Chris Claremont, I guess, is the era uh, that I'm thinking of. Um, he also, I think he was, uh, involved with the comic called The New Mutants, which, Paul, did you read? I did read The New Mutants, yep. I really like The New Mutants. Uh, it was kind of sort of a, a kid's version of, of the X-Men, but set in the same universe and all that stuff. Um, I think there's probably going to be a New Mutants TV show, and there's certainly, if you guys have seen Deadpool, um, the... Uh, Xavier's school for gifted, uh, mutants sort of attitude that the girl in those Deadpool movies, um, yeah. well, I can't remember yeah. the character yeah. name, but. Yeah, yeah, Negatonic, yeah. Is that Negatonic, her? yeah. Oh, right, right, yeah. So, but just sort of a sassy and, um, 
what's really cool about that run in the eighties is that the mute, the X Men mutants are two schools of philosophy. I guess there's are going on. There's there's Professor X. Everybody probably seen the movies at some point, right? Uh, played by Jean Jean Luc yep. Picard or Patrick Stewart. Well, uh, originally Patrick Stewart. Now it's uh, now it's uh, played by uh, what's his name? Um, yeah, I don't uh, know. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 the new movie's coming out shortly as of the, as of this recording. Yeah, so. and so that 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 Dark Phoenix saga is. What's his name? McAvoy. McAvoy, yes, okay. James McAvoy. He was in those M Night Shyamalan movies. Oh God, yes. Oh God, don't remind me. I think me he's of playing those. Bill Dembro in in it. He's gotten a lot of work. I guess he's good. He's a, he's a good he actor. Um, but. I want to I want to bump him off of um, of the other the baddie Magneto right everybody remembers Magneto so they they have two philosophies uh, we the mutants are a real phenomenon they have these superpowers um, and there's two teams there's the goodies and the baddies and the baddies are run by Magneto and he says we are Homo Superior. We are going to replace you, you evil fucking humans. You've been persecuting us. Um, he, he himself is a Nazi concentration camp survivor, right? He's got this whole philosophy worked out. And then on the other side is Professor X, who's like, no, we are the protectors of the, of the humans. They're just misunderstanding us. And th- that whole run of Uncanny X-Men is sort of an exploration of, of what the relationship humans will have to, to homo superior, um, as, as, uh, professor, not professor, as Magneto calls him, right? That's what he calls that. And the, the thing is, is when we see the X-Men, they tend to be, you know, like Storm and Rogue and, uh, Wolverine. They tend to be, uh, pretty showy mutant powers you know they can fly or they can cause storms or they can uh, have indestructible healing and you know he can, one guy can shoot laser beams out of his face right <laughs> we've got we've got a lot of uh you know showy powers but uh, what was also cool was in the background uh, the mutants that they're protecting on both sides um are uh just Random. So you can have people who can lift rocks with their mind and that they can only lift pebbles, but they can, you know, change the color of the beach or a person who can make flowers sprout from, uh, you know, the sand, but that's the, the extent of their powers. Um, and even there's a new, uh, Wolverine podcast, uh, that, it follows up on that same background idea that not all the mutant powers are going to be very exciting. They're just, Random. They're, they can be anything. And so what's interesting, and I felt this in The Golden Man as well, I probably talked about this a little bit, that, that the whole, um, you either join the, uh, the hunt for these things and become a, um, what did, what did the, uh, Egg, Eggleton, is that his name? Mm-hmm. He yeah. called, Egerton, yeah. He yeah, called them castrated or something, or tamed, um, Tamed telepaths. Tamed, yeah, tamed, tamed telepaths. Yeah, but tamed mutants as well, like that. The, the, their job was to help hunt down the uh, the ones that. Yeah, 
we'll keep the game telepaths, of course, so we can get out all the thoughts and subliminal material. Right. The teeps won't evaluate. We'll handle that ourselves. So that that was one major vibe I was getting from this. I also got a major Alfred Bester vibe from this uh, industrialist who's got a secret and trying to avoid getting uh, interviewed, right? Or, or getting ser- processor. Is that the, I mean, that whole opening sequence kind of remind me of being processor. It's like oh, he's trying to avoid, try to avoid that. And we've seen a couple of those in Dick's stories. It's just you wonder, Marissa, I mean, I didn't see anything in the biography, which we'll talk about in another episode, that he ever had that situation ever happen to him. It, but it seems to be something that's on his mind now and again about that Bounty whole hunters, process. yeah, absolutely. That's the android stream of electric sheep, right? Right. So, so I don't know what was in Bill K. Dick that he kept coming to this idea again and again, but we do see it here in a more legalistic form. But what I wanted to say is what this reminded me of is I want to read something, and this is going to sound somewhat familiar to the events of the story. Within the bubble of alternate reality that surrounds them, their hallucinations and bizarre rules are real. Objects and creatures that come into contact with the bubble are transformed to fit within its rules. They return to normal once the marauder moves on without any evidence of what happened, though the effects remained. Awakened mages and supernatural creatures who enter a marauder's bubble may recognize that something is wrong. So, um, there's a... Everyone knows about... the. Almost everybody knows about the world of darkness, you know, play vampires and werewolves. So there's also a game called Mage the Ascension. What did what, you, you call that game that I know about? Ma- vampire oh, the Masquerade? No. Is that what you said? Vampire the Masquerade, okay, Werewolf yeah. the Apocalypse. Okay. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I've heard of them, but I've never played them, so I'm not super familiar with them. I, I kind of figured you heard about them. Anyway, so there was one called Mage the Ascension where you basically played mages, and there were two major types of mages. The good mages who wanted to use magic for the benefit of humanity and the technocracy who wanted to shut down magic for everybody else and control it, which kind of sounds a little bit like our organization here. And then there were the marauders. Marauders were basically renegade mages who just went and did whatever they wanted and reality bent around them to work. Kind of like here where a guy can grow spaceships in his backyard because he believes he can. He's so... Or he can fly in the moon with his flapping his arms because he believes he can. So I kept thinking of, okay, these guys are really sorcerers and don't even know it. They're not mutants. They're magic users. <laughs> and they, they, they have to control their magic because their magic works for them and it's absolutely real. Mm-hmm. Magic is their mutation. Well, magic is their mutation. That's how I. That's how I interpret this story. I, I remember Evan comparing this to a story um, that I really like. I've done a show on called uh, "The Eyes Have It." Um, Evan, do you remember oh, yeah. that story? Oh yeah, sure. I know that story. It's well, I, I mentioned that in the in oh, the yeah. podcast. I made yeah. the yeah. directly. Yeah, I mean, I, I see it now, I, so I know why I was thinking of it. Yeah, but. so the, uh, I mean, I don't remember what I said. Well, uh, I'll just <laughs> remind everybody of what the story is about. It, it, it it's a very funny plot. It's about it's told in first person, which is pretty unusual for Philip K. Dick. Um, um, it's about a guy who who took the bus home from work and then uh, started reading a paperback in his living room, 
Um, and the, the events in the paperback were so astounding that he had to go into the garage to finish reading it. Um, and then, uh, when he's called in for dinner, uh, from, by his wife, uh, there's a final revelation, um, that the reader sees, but the character doesn't see. And the premise is that the, he's discovered a novel that tells uh, that the Earth has been invaded and that we're surrounded by aliens. Um, but it's actually just a mimetic novel. <laughs> that is a novel mm-hmm. that just tells you about regular, basically what Philip K. Dick's mainstream books are about, right? Just people arguing about who's cheating on who and <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, so uh, the the scenes that are really striking and horrible to him are when they're just walking around doing normal things, like they go to the bar or the diner and um, they have lunch uh, and she gives him her hand. <laughs> um, <Right. laughs> and then um, yeah, I, I they come out of the diner. Of, and he's horrified. That's right. He, <laughs> that's the, kind of a, but yeah. I remember that story is sort of a play on like in, in a mainstream novel, giving to someone your hand has a very clear meaning. Yes, right. Absolutely. But so yeah. in a science fiction setting and all this stuff, um, you know, could be taken literally. And, and that's, that's exactly what's so good about the ending of this is it's, it's a classic Philip K. Dick ending. It's got a classic Philip K. Dick beginning and a classic Philip K. Dick ending, right? Great opening and a great ending. And then there's some really cool ideas in the middle, but, um, that final reveal that we've actually been told about several times, right? Um, I'll just read the last two paragraphs. As he flew silently through the night, he gulped vast lungfuls of clean, fresh air. Oh, how does he doing that? Satisfactory <laughs> Satisfaction and rising excitement raced through him. He had spotted Richards immediately, and why not? How could he miss? A man who grew jet transports from a plant in his backyard was clearly a lunatic. It was just so much simpler just to flap one's arms. Right? I, I love that sting. It's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, crap. Yeah, that's a very classic <laughs> Philip K. Dick ending. Yeah, even though it sort of undermines the what I think is, is the rather radical consensus, the discovery of a, the possibility of a democratic and objective consensus. Yep, yep. Um, Dr. Two, that kind of undermines it at the end. I, I still like the ending. but Oh, yeah. Um, it's, part it's, of me wishes he had stuck with the resolution that he, he came to earlier. Um, but I, I want to mention another shout-out to this idea. Um, it's uh, from The Dark Tower. Um, now, there are mutants in The Dark Tower, if no one's familiar, by Stephen King. They're called Breakers in the course of the novel, and all these different mutants from his other fiction get drawn into the story in various ways. Um, and in the final Dark Tower novel, there's... A couple characters, actually two that sort of work together to create uh, essentially a gingerbread house that they can kind of, these people can kind of live in for a while. Wow. And, and so that, I don't know where he got that idea from. Um, I, you know, I don't think he read Philip Dick as far as I know, but, um, yeah. Just another example of this, this idea of, mm-hmm. of mutants being able to create a, a certain reality within a certain space. Well, that's, that's really what authors do, right? <laughs> That's yeah. oh, right. Speaking of the X Men, Jesse, have you? It's more nineties and eighties. Did you ever read House of M? Uh, you mentioned it uh, to me, and I did read one issue, but I'm not not ex- ex- oh, extensively I, familiar I, with it. 
I, I, I did mention in an earlier podcast because I like it so much. So for, the, for the listeners who don't remember, House of M basically the basically the Scarlet Witch changes the entirety of reality on Earth so that mutants are in the ascendancy and they basi- basically Magneto runs the world and humans are the are the lesser and hunted out species and this turns out so badly that eventually she finally decides to wipe it all out completely by saying no more mutants and she wipes out most of the mutants and turns things back to normal but not so much normal because now there are almost no more mutants left so that's yeah scarlet witch is the most reality bending character generally in the in the in in the marvel verse except maybe thanos with his you know snapping but mm-hmm. but yeah so yeah that's again like let's change reality and make it stick well, that's uh, that's what we're all trying to do in in our lives, right? We're trying to make reality uh, more comfortable or meaner. We're trying to hurt people, or we're trying to change reality. And um, I I I swear we I've talked about this probably on that Golden Man uh, episode and, and mentioned. You know, remember when uh, what's the head of Apple? Tim, not Tim Cook, the other guy. Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs. When the Steve Jobs biography came out, they, they there was this line um, that was very familiar uh, to me, which is uh, reality distortion field. Distortion field, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So that all the people around uh, a person who's got this vision of how the world can be different, how we can improve everybody's lives by giving them iPods and iTunes and all that stuff, um, that... Uh, was very familiar to me because um, my mom's very uh, forceful person. She, when she sets her mind to do something, she figures out a way to do it. She gets it done. Um, she has a reality distortion field, and sometimes she's wrong about stuff just because she's human uh, or a mutant, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so uh, when you're inside the reality distortion field, uh, you know, reality can be very distorted. Um, so I really like that this story doesn't say this is about this. Cause like, I, I like science fiction stories that, that are analogies for something. So like, um, um, no matter how stupid Margaret Atwood is, she did write a good novel and, um, everybody, <laughs> everybody who reads that novel, I think can appreciate that it is sort of an, uh, an amalgam of really terrible ideas, right? That, you know, if implemented would, and have been implemented, as she points out, right? Uh, in the past and I guess in the present, depending on who, what class you are and all that stuff, right? It's an important way of saying this is what the world is like for some people, or this is the way, way the world could be if we did not careful and that sort of thing, right? So I read a story recently, um, uh, by Steve Allen, uh, called The Public Hating. And it's set, you know, in the future. Um, and they found out that, uh, through studies at the university that, uh, everybody has a little bit of psychic ability. And so we can, if we all get together, we can basically burn people alive just by focusing our, our hate on them. And that's what they do. They, they get public figures who are not well liked and they, put them on trial and then they execute them publicly and they get everybody whipped up. And when the story is written, 1954, 
Um, it was the height of McCarthyism. It is about McCarthyism. That's what it's about, right? It, but he never mm-hmm. mentions McCarthy, but it's so clear it's about McCarthyism. Um, because of, you know, if you're reading what's going on in 1954, if you're at all aware of what's going on in 1954, <laughs> when, when, um, McCarthy turned his attention to the army and said, now that no, we, we got Hollywood, we got Washington, we got, we, we're, we're putting every man against every man, right? Um, you all have to bow before the uh, House on American Activities Committee. Um, that when the, when the army was being infiltrated by communists, people just had enough and they they rebelled against him. And eventually, McCarthyism sort of petered out and died. Um, that was a, very clear in that story. This story, I'm not sure it's about McCarthyism. Um, it fits with the time, but I was thinking, well, it's this agency, it's the FBI, right? In a certain sense, we've got these elites whose job it is to investigate, you know, this person and investigate that person. And we know from, uh, Philip K. Dick's own life, um, that he, his wife was under investigation and he was under investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so was that around the same time? It is exactly around the same time, right? Uh-huh. And at the same time this story is written. But um, he he's also not, you know, 100% against the idea, right? He's sympathetic with the idea that – but this isn't only about that because I was thinking, well, this is actually about religion too <laughs> because – I was totally thinking that. Right? Because yeah. when when uh, he says if we allow them to breed, their ideas are going to <laughs> – multiply and continue and then we'll just have utter chaos right (laughs) yeah like i didn't think of that until i was trying to think like oh like how bad would it be if people's delusions could be made real like i like this idea of a plant that's growing um high velocity transports (laughs) yeah like that's cool and then i started thinking about it and i was like wait a second this is exactly the world we live in where like people come up with these religions all these things and they literally do make it reality for everyone else and it kind of sucks <laughs> oh yeah totally and and that that's that's why you know uh, my uh, i saw paul repudiate his religion earlier in this morning on twitter so <laughs> i'll say my, my... I, I i i didn't repudiate I, I i admit i'm a lapsed catholic i just saw that tweet from that from that from that uh, bishop idiot and was not amused. Bishop idiot, which one? <laughs> well, the, 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 the one? The one said, oh, yeah, and as now pride comes on, just remember this is against the teachings of the Catholic Church, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, you, yeah, I'm not, I'm not buying what you're selling, man. <laughs> well, um, I, I was going to say my friend Julie, um, uh, yes, you know, still practice, <laughs> practicing her religion, um, <clears throat> Catholicism. Um, she's, <clears throat> excuse me, She's um uh she's a very nice person. Um I don't think she she would go around murdering people, but um she is in a religion and one of the th- one she's she's very smart. But there was one point I made to her a long time ago that I always think, "Oh yeah, that was a point that's irrefutable, really." You know how uh, I I I enjoy all sorts of different kinds of foods. I enjoy Korean food. And I enjoy Thai, Thai food and I enjoy a barbecue and, you know, I, I like pretty much every kind of food. Um, veganism is almost like a religion, right? Uh, Evan, you're a vegetarian. I don't think that's exactly a religion, but it's certainly, uh, it's certainly a, a, a set of strictures that you yeah. put upon yourself. Um, but the thing about enjoying 
food is you can enjoy multiple restaurants. Maybe you don't have six different kinds of food on the same day. But have you ever met a person who was a member of the Jewish faith, the Christian faith, and the Muslim faith at the same time? Well, and, you have polytheists, right? Polytheists. <laughs> Well, no, you know, they went to, they went to mosque on Friday, and then they went to synagogue on Saturday, and they went to church on Sunday. It just never happens. Well, I, there are people who are individuals, but systems work that way. So, like, when the Romans conquer the Greeks, they bring in the, these Greek gods, and they conquer other people, they kind of incorporate these deities into the, the overall pantheon, and then people are free to choose. Yes, and credits is what, could could pray to Osiris and Ares, you know, and even though they're coming from different traditions, but so they're, they're not exclusive. That yeah, they're not exclusivist, right? So that that's well, the I don't point. think traditions by definition are exclusiveness. Ex- yeah, exactly. Exclusive. And, and our practicing our practicing of it is the, the the way we do it. You know, no matter how much you you have meetings between the bishops and the clergy of different different denominations and you say you know we're cool with you doing whatever you do on we'll even have you in to give us a lecture uh ultimately it's not all one you you have to pick a team and that's the kind of thinking that is going on uh by the the people who are trying to eliminate the mutants here it isn't polytheistic it isn't like yeah i really like apollo today because i'm really into uh, learning um and uh, later on friday i'm going to be uh I'm going to be worshiping it at the, yeah, Bacchus because I, I'm going to get my I'm going wine to get on. Drunk. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to get my <laughs> wine on and maybe if I'm not careful, I'll, I'll hang out with Pan. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I thought that was a really cool idea that's going on. There's almost like a whole world behind this story. He, this is enough material for a novel, I would say. Well, it is. He, Dick did write a novel on this very subject. It's called Eye in the Sky. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. Which is all about subjective universes. That's a little bit different. Here yeah. it's a little yeah, bit more different. diverse, right? Because all these mutants have their own pockets, their own bubbles. But in Eye in the Sky, it's these eight people fall into a, a, right, the, a the, yeah, the, accelerator the, or something. Yeah, the and all they're there. The Bevatron. The Bevatron. Yeah. Yeah. One can create and, a... a, a world that kind of enslaves everyone else but it's a subjective it, it's based on their subjective view of reality so they start with the religious nut then they have like a a puritanical woman who can't handle any like sin in the world then they have uh like a paranoid that which is a really fun section oh oh, the, they, the, 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 the house. oh my god that house i still remember that house yeah, yeah. oh and the yeah. cat and the cat. But that that's that well about half of that and novel is about just one of these <laughs> realities with the religious one. It's it's uh it's a monotheism. It's it's kind of the Baha'i faith, right? Mm. But so, so it's called second bath What's the difference so and because I remember that they did create their uh, their delusions in that one and it did bring other people into their into their reality. Into their false reality, right? Well everyone that's it was in the Bevatron Here's like eight oh, right, people yeah, in that world, but one was saying. dominated for times. Right. That was one person controlled uh, the rules of the game. And so in this but one... Not, the cool thing about that, it's based on this, their subjective reality. It's, it's, not, it's not a fantasy world they're making up, because wouldn't it be cool if you could fly? It's 
like that that religious guy who creates the first world in that novel, it is it's because he really believes this stuff. He really believes prayers are answered, so prayers are answered. It's it's um, not so much they're in control, but their subjectivity is being imposed on others. Do you think that's kind of similar in this book, though? Because I feel like the guy growing the Richard. the transport plant and the guy that's flying also, they just totally believe that's normal, and they haven't even hasn't even like yeah, registered to them that this could be a problem. Well, I, I really like Egerton. Egerton says something to the effect like, um, "It was he admitting to himself that he was a mutant." <laughs> Right. And, and he, no, 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 no. He just had a problem with the the invasion of privacy. <laughs> and the thing is, is of course he was admitting to himself, right, that he knew deep down. And there's even a scene. Uh, the, the, what's so cool about this story is it cannot be told as a film, right? You cannot have um, the well without changing radically. You know, you never show the guy taking off from the roof or landing on any other roof, right? Uh, we we get the sense that there's helicopters and this is the future, so you know everybody can fly around easily using machines. But when he, it, when he's at the end, he's breathing the the cool night air. <laughs> you said, well, how, "How's he doing that from inside the co- helicopter or whatever?" Uh, mm-hmm. Well, he's not. But there, mm-hmm. uh, uh, if you remember early on when he he gets served by the the bounty hunter. Um, uh, he t- he took off at a uh, an incredible rate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, and that's kind of the problem with this one because when all those people see the guy growing the transports on the plant, like the reaction is so strong. I think it's hilarious that everyone screams mm. and basically breaks down his garden fence, trying to escape from him. But this guy's flying around. And no one. Well, that's uh, it's it's actually very nicely handled. Um, I've got I just saw a line and I lost it, but it said um, Edgar did did not fly directly, right? Um, And and he's (laughs) he's uh, yeah, Egerton did not. This is on page fifty. Egerton did not fly directly home. At high velocity, he circled aimlessly near the first ring of residential syndromes at the edge of New York. His mind ebbing first with terror, then with outrage. Uh, so he's several times, um, you know, no one saw him land, right? So yeah, I, he's always landing on like rooftops and stuff. Well, but but there are there are landings platforms on them, right? So it's designed for helicopters, and he's a high business executive, <laughs> yeah, right? Because the they, they mentioned robot taxis. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, autocabs or whatever. Uh, but Tiny yeah, cabs. it's 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 it, it can't be a doubt like. It, I'd hate to see an adaptation done by Electric Dreams, but it, even if uh, you got a competent group to to turn it into a film, you'd have to change his his mutant power to something that was much more subtle, um, right? Because uh, it just it it relies in the same way as um, the eyes have it on. <laughs> on, yeah, you've got to uh, hide it with the text. Yeah, it would be being be in, being a text, and it's it's actually very. It's it's got a lot of fun stuff in the, this whole world he's built up. Like um, I'm, I was listening to it, so I didn't know how it was spelled. But um, this is on page fifty one uh, on the far right column that says, uh, starting with the vast. It goes down. Uh, he could yell and shout, and nobody would appear. He could summon up nobody and nothing. The agency was the legal government of the Niplan system. I was like Niplan. <laughs> 
plans. Yeah, 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 yeah. It shows up a couple times in the text. I was like, Nip Plan, right? I listen, like, what is Nip Plan? Nip Plan. Yeah. So uh, it's apparently, yeah, yeah the, the name of this, this, uh, some do speak. This is society, yeah. Indeed. And, you know, he calls the, uh, the residences syndromes, which I've, I've heard in other places, right? Um, Have you? Oh, I think so. And other Philip K. Dick, I'm pretty sure you used that. Or it's a, maybe it's a science fiction term that people use, but it's pretty unusual. It's not conapt, exactly. Yeah, I hadn't heard it before. I thought it was a really cool word. Yeah. And so, uh, speaking of cool words, you guys notice that the, the characters' names are all really funny? Um, uh, Evan, I noted you in your, you're finishing off of the Philip K. Dick, uh, last novels um, published in his lifetime, you're m- making uh, notes about how uh, several of the characters' names sounded very similar, or Bob Archer and uh, Archer yeah. and like that. Um, uh, I love the opening here. When Richards got home from work, he had a secret little routine he went through, a pleasant series of actions that brought him more satisfaction than his 10-hour workday at the Commerce Institute so uh, uh, the world is set up here in a great way, but if you notice, his name is Richards, while short for Richard is Dick, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then um, what? What are the uh, mutants called? They're called PKs. <laughs> so, oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't notice Psychokinetic, that. right? And that is they can That's con- crazy. change reality with their mind, and then because ah, yeah, yeah. go for it. There you go. There, you, there you go again with the whole idea of writers is changing reality. Because <laughs> that's the other thing I was thinking that we didn't talk about yet is when we're talking about this like delusion, making people believe in your delusion. I was kind of also wondering is that Philip K. Dick because we know that he was quite Definitely. manipulative and could, you know, tell these like crazy stories and people around him didn't quite know when he was like joking or when he's. You know, playing a character. Yeah, and so he doesn't know. I don't think either. I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, so, I don't. So he's like, what if I? <laughs> what if I could make them believe? And then it, later on, we get um, this is on page forty-nine, top right column. John Egerton didn't seem like a parakineticist. Uh, and then we get the girl's name. Doris's mind imagined a small, one-faced, uh, small, one-faced youth. Withdrawn and agonized, buried in out-of-the-way towns and farms, hidden away from urban areas. Egerton (laughs) was prominent, but of course that didn't affect his chance of being picked up uh, by a random check net. I love this stuff. Like, he's built up a whole world here. As she sipped her Tom Collins, she tried to think of other reasons why John Egerton would ignore his initial check notice. Then his warning, fine, and possible imprisonment, and now this, his last notice... Was Egerton really PK? <laughs> <laughs> wow. And of course, yes. So, the answer is yes. <laughs> well, and, 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 I mean, there's, there's some lovely description right in the next sentence. Her face in the dark mirror behind the bar wavered. Rings of half shadows, nebulous oh, yeah. succubi, a gloom of fog like that which lay over the Nipland system. I mean, I mean, I mean, he's really on today uh-huh. with his words. Totally. Yeah. So we bring really up the cool woman. Descriptions. Can we? Can we? Oh. Go ahead. No, no go, go ahead. Sorry. Go for it. No, I just think we should talk about the the gender politics here yeah, a little bit. That the immunes are all women. 
Mm-hmm. And so you have <laughs> and PK, they're all PK that's Richards. Right. Uh, you have you have these PKs creating realities, creating uh, these fantasy worlds, writing science fiction. <laughs> the women are not biting tonight. Uh, and then you have these women coming in and saying, "No, no, no, that's not true. That's right. Yeah, that's true. Be realistic. That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 so it's almost as if this this mutation is solely on the Y chromosome. Wow, so this only meant only meant it's Philip K. Dick. Yeah. Well, only women are the ones grounded in, in totally in reality, right? Yeah. Only they can be right. coming in and busting his bubble. Yeah, yeah. Well, which means the whole ending we hear with uh, with basically trying to overthrow the system is kind of like overthrowing that sort of suffocating. I mean, the, he even uses the word matriarchy at one point in, yes, in this does. story. So yeah, he, he really, and, he really and drops it. Egerton is not having it. He's, he's yeah, not, he's terrified of it. Yeah, he right. doesn't like the matriarchy. No. And right. um, yeah, so what's with the furniture then? Why is the furniture so sexist? <laughs> the desk is like I want to talk about the desk. I want to talk about the desk, but I also want to point out that her name is Doris. Um, one of my favorite stories by him is uh, Beyond the Door. Um, I don't know if he named that story, but uh, the main character's name is Doris in that story, and that's the one where the, uh, I think I sent sent you guys the uh, the website that allows you to switch all the gender uh, yeah. on a story. And if you sw- if you do it on, um, we did a show on um, uh, Murray Leinster's uh, Pirates of Zan, um, aka Pirates of Erzatz. Right, and if you switch the gender on the main character, there it has almost no effect on the story. It's just, oh, she's an empowered woman, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, I, and whether yeah. she's a lesbian or she's uh, in in a relationship with a gender neutral, or if she's uh, uh, hetero, it really doesn't affect the story very much. But if you do that same, you know, flip the switch on um, on uh, Beyond the Door, the story becomes insane in a way that it, it 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 because it's about gender and the ability to choose your uh you know women always know who the mother of their baby is because it came out of their body it's theirs right men only hope that the baby coming out of their wife's body is theirs Unless they live in, you know, Saudi Arabia or whatever, they can control these things. That's what that story is about. It's about those paranoias that men have and the seemingly non-paranoias that women have. Um, so if you switch those around, it's really funny. Doris here, um, is almost like the main character because she's, she's, she's our Rick Deckard character from, um, uh, Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. Uh, she doesn't get the screen time uh, of a main character, but her interests and her, like, she's the one trying to get something, right? We don't know what Egerton's, why did he miss his appointment? Why did he not respond? I think it's Philip K. Dick missing a court appointment, right? <laughs> like, he, <laughs> he, he was supposed to, uh, you know, we know from uh, the comic book um, biography, and we know from you know, previous biographies we read that, yeah, he, he's, he had a little bit of trouble with the law. So obviously at some point he, he missed a coin, a court appointment and he was subject to being arrested. Maybe one of the reasons he fled to Canada at one point, right? Um, and says, I, I want to live here. 
because yeah. I can't go yeah, home. Yeah, the Vancouver trip. Yeah, right. And that uh, that idea of him being on the run, he's trying to explain it to himself in a certain. Uh, obviously, the timeline doesn't line up, but we don't know. Uh, we don't know like day by day what everything happened in Philip K. Dick's life. But this story tells me that something bad happened, and he missed an appointment that he really needed to go to, and now the world has come crashing down. Yeah, I feel like yeah. he missed a lot of appointments. That guy, definitely. That's, definitely. Yeah, that's that's pretty that's pretty good. Um, so, so as we've been talking about the story, I remembered a story I read years ago, and I actually found it online, and I actually put it in the chat, which kind of reminds me of this whole reality distortion. It's Charles. L harnesses the new reality, and it's a it's a story it's a story about this organization which tries to keep reality basically from going off the rails. And at one point, they talk about trying to add a bomb an experiment because this experiment will break reality apart. And I just I was just thinking about this about the about the the PKs in the story that okay, so we so we got a guy that can make uh make spaceships and one flap his wings. What if we get one that can spontaneously create nuclear blasts i mean we these these the the good thing about this organization is that it keeps these marauders from basically destroying reality and it's maybe maybe this is a cure better than the alternative because these new humans could really unmake everything if not put into check kind of like kind of like in the new reality where basically they basically unmake the entire world at the end and remake it again into the garden of eden. Hmm. Well, Dick definitely thought suppressing the posthumans might be necessary. That's the whole point of the golden man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh yeah, that's yeah, that's right. definitely that's definitely the golden man's thesis. And, and sorry to mention King again, but Carrie and Firestarter looking mm-hmm. at those two novels together, you have that same dilemma of of can society exist with these types of people with these powers, right? Because mm. the liberal side of people may say, well, we sh- these people shouldn't be, you know, imprisoned and experimented on or whatever, but... But maybe, you know, yeah, but maybe... I think at the end of Firestarter, there's even the implication she could destroy the sun, you know? Can, can someone like that be let let free? Which, which reminds me of the role-playing game Exalted, which is set in a fantasy world where these weapons of the gods basically rule, rule, rule creation, but... They they all have a fatal flaw of madness, which is mm. which would threaten reality. So their underlings basically conspire to kill them and lock their souls away so that reality could be safe. And that works for a couple thousand years until someone cracks the prison open and uh uh-uh. uh. And that's basically the premise of the game. You're one of these souls reborn. Yes, oh. you have great power, but you also have this fatal flaw within you, which could cause you to really do bad things. And is is reality going to fall because of your because of your your fatal flaw or not? <laughs> well, the 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 beginning of the story in the, the the original edition, and I guess the editor wrote this, but it's it's quite useful. It, it's right before the title. It's uh, the tagline or whatever, right? the the selling point to read the story. Editorial uh, notes. I call them editorial. Yeah, so notes. society had to protect itself against people with delusions, people who could make their delusions work. Now. My take on this when I when I originally read this and I did the podcast on it was was that's the political radical. Mm-hmm. Was someone with a delusion who could make their delusion work? The the Leninist, right? Yeah, yeah. The, I mean the that who can it's seize the power and actually make their delusions, you know, whether it's socialism or, or anarchism or, or whatever. Nazism. Uh, that's uh, the, that's a fascism, really strong be, right? one, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's attention. The political reading of the story for me is is essentially that. But and then you have the state suppressing these essentially radical ideas, right? But who actually rewrites history more often? It changes reality in that sense. It's states. States mm-hmm. do this all the time, right? Yep. This is what's going to be taught to young people. You know, we're going to write Jefferson out of our Texas history textbooks, or we're going to write Tiananmen Square out of out of the Chinese history textbooks, the, the state actually does the reality creation, right. right? So this tension between kind of the creativity of the population and, and the state, I think, runs throughout this story. And that's what I really gravitated to when I first read, the first couple times I read this. Yeah. I, right? I, I, which, really makes, which really, I like the conclusion of the story because, you know, one way radicalism gets critiqued is it's a utopian or it's too crazy or if everyone's doing their own thing, you know, where, where's this, you know, society will lose it. Right. Well, this, you know, Dick's kind of consensus at the end of the story is collectively democratically there, that can be the check on the extremes, but it's still the power of creating realities in the, in the population, not in the state. I, I have a, I have a story I want to tell. I is that that's too much? Maybe a forced political no, reading. No, 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 no. I, I no. was thinking about not how Nazism, right? Is it's all about? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's it's kind of why I think he's so interested. It's really he's sort of going over the same issues over and over and over and over again. That's uh, that's what everybody says about what is going on in the exegesis as well, or however you pronounce that book's name. Um, okay. But also that you know why is why is he why is he obsessed by Nazis? Um, well, it's because they have this this political will that says this is this is the way things are. This is how things are going to be, and we're going to do it. And it's going to be amazing. And then other people say, I, I don't know about that. And then you know, no, you're gone. You're in the concentration camp. You're done. Um, so, it, what, what do they do when they find the mutant? They don't like say, well, we're going to take you to therapy. They kill him, right? They, he's yeah. executed. And then we find out that Egerton, um, is go, uh, sorry, Richards is going to, wait, 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 who, which one? Yeah, it's Egerton. Egerton's the one who's alive at the end. Richards, yeah, Richards is the Philip K. Dick character, is executed by Egerton, who is just a, a regular human, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's no trial. There's no anything like that. They, they found out he was a Jew and they executed him. Um, and then in fact, the fact that this other guy was going to be in trouble for not showing up for his random screening. Um, well, she says, well, you're, you're going to be fine. Um, you know, you might have to do a little bit of penance for a couple of years, but you know, you're not going to be executed and you won't have to be a permanent castrati. I found the word earlier. Is a very Philip K. Dick uh, uh, musical term, right? <laughs> it, 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 yeah, it, I was also the, the castrated and why not? But, uh, but speaking about making reality, I want to I want to quote I want to quote somebody here. Mm-hmm. You might recognize this quote. It's it's from the days of uh, the president previous to Obama. That's not how the way world really works anymore we're an empire now and when we act we create our own reality and while you're studying that reality judiciously as you will act again creating other realities which you can study too and that's how things will sort out we're history's actors and you all of you will be left just to study what we do call rove oh, okay i was thinking that does not sound like george bush <laughs> no no it's Karl rove <laughs> a little bit yeah, too sophisticated um yeah but 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that whole that whole authoritarian Nazi thing. Like we're going to make reality, and that's because we say things are. That's the way things are. Well, yeah. It, if it you kill all the people who disagree, mindset. right? Um, all right, I'll probably beat them into acceptance of what you have as reality. I, I wanted. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to point out that um, you know th- this week I saw a really nice um, uh, because it's the I don't know seventy. I can't remember exact seventy 70th anniversary of D Day. It can't be. Got to be seventy five. Seventy fifth. Okay. Forty four. Anyways, it was. That's this week, and so there's a great uh, website in Canada. I guess it's not a website. An institution that makes one minute films that are really, really good. They're propaganda films for uh, Canadian heritage, um, but they chose to do it on. Um, you know, the 75th or whatever anniversary of D-Day, which is an important, you know, it's an important event in World War II. But a hundred years ago, can- Canadians were for no reason, and bad reasons, fighting in Russia. Why? Why does this not get any play? Because it's been written out. It's, it's, it gets two sentences, if you're lucky, in a Canadian textbook. And United States, I, I've never seen an American textbook, not that I see that many, um, that mentions the fact that, yeah, there, there's this whole 339th, I think, battalion, who is, they're told that they're being sent to the Western Front, and when they get to uh, to Europe, they're said, no, the war's pretty much over, you're going to Russia. Uh, oh, and you're going to be under British command. <laughs> and then what happens? American military unit mutinies how is how is that never mentioned because it's written out of history because we don't want to talk about it because it's a shameful event and if we start thinking we make little mistakes right so if you can kill it off it's totally possible um and and that is why it is a government institution so when he comes up with this plan we can we can just sort of police ourselves I was thinking this is like the insane people in this the sanitarium, right? <laughs> Sitting around Starting in the, the asylum. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, no. They're saying, "Look, look. I know I'm a little bit crazy, and you, you, John, you, you're really a little bit crazy too. We're, we all know we're crazy, but if we just police ourselves, right? Um, well, we'll know. Well, that's kind of the idea in Plans of the Elfane Moon, exactly. Exactly. Right? Where you have all these. Descendants he, of, he of and, the sand asylum, and they're all put into clans based on whatever mental illness they get in their adolescence. But collectively, all the necessary jobs of society are provided for, right? The hyperphrenetics are like the janitors. The paranoias are the military. Right. The the, the schizophrenics are the artists and creators. But you know, all the mental illnesses collect collectively create a, a functioning society. Yep, and uh, I. I I, I had two incidents this week I want to talk about. Uh, one, one, um, I spent two nights of this week, um, sorting through old computer monitors and laptops and telephones. Um, not because I'm really into those things, although I, I have a little bit of interest in them. Um, uh, but because a friend of mine, his brother is, uh, schizophrenic and his house was full of the stuff that his brother had been bringing over and accumulating, just storing there, right? And so I foolishly said, yeah, sure, you can come put it, bring it over here. And so I got a big stack of monitors and old computers and laptops and, wow. and, and, you know, a phone 
<laughs> and I'm like, oh, I guess this is going to the recycling, right? Why is this happening? Well, because his brother's schizophrenic. And what that means is, you know, he gets on the bus or the SkyTrain, we call it here, um, and uh, he gets in trouble with the with the police because he's not using his um, his uh, bus pass or whatever it is um, uh, because he lost it. Um, and he loses his keys and his phone and right, but but also his mom thinks that thinks that he he might work for the SkyTrain as a police officer, right? And the thing is, is he says he does at some points because he thinks he is, and then some people on the SkyTrain probably think that he <laughs> he is because he's oh. taking it so seriously, and so you spend a lot of time sort of dealing with the fact that you've got. A person who believes something and is acting like it, and then other people like that is reality distortion, right? Uh, and at, yeah. at some point, it becomes clear, just like it, it does to us at the end of this story when he's flapping his arms, that the main guy's off, right? So that that was one incident, and then there's this other incident I, I tweeted about it. Um, and I thought it was just so hilarious because it's one of those moments where it says to you, you know, everybody sort of flirts with the ideas of, um, of, uh, solipsism at some point. Everybody who yep. I think thinks a little bit says, what if I'm the only person who exists? <laughs> what if you're all figments of my imagination? Right. <laughs> yeah. Where, where did all you zombies come from? <laughs> That's right. Well, oh, at sorry. least there he's got a, he's got an, you know, he's got a beginning, a middle and an end. <laughs> Yeah, but he's still the only only real person is Jane there alone in the dark. I miss you all dreadful. <laughs> um, so what happened was um, I was pulling out of my conapt um, in my my uh, road road jalopy or whatever they're called. <laughs> no, it's not a jalopy. It's a, a, skiz- a skizzer or something, something like that. Um, and uh, I, I took a left on my street and there was some road construction. Um, a very short street and, uh, it looked like single lane alternating traffic, right? Because of the road construction or whatever they're digging up. And there was a lady there with a, you know, I think they're called flag people. You know, they, even though they don't have a flag, they have like a little sign that says stop, slow, slow and stop, right? You know the sign I'm talking yeah. about? Okay. Yeah. It says slow on one side and stop on the other. So she, she was looking at me as I, as I'm slowly going towards her, um, and she had it down like by her knee and it wasn't facing either way. So I'm like, Oh, that's weird. <laughs> and so I'm like waiting for her to like give me the sign, like slow or stop. <laughs> and she didn't give me either. So I like pull ahead a little more and then she's still looking at me like I'm an idiot or something. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> okay. So, uh, I pull ahead a little more and then she, she looks back at the other flag person at the end of the street and then starts walking towards me. Uh, okay. I, I guess, um, there's some issue. Um, so she comes up, my window's open because it's a hot day, leans in the window and says, um, didn't you see the sign? <laughs> I'm like, I guess not. Um, it's right there behind you in your rear view mirror. And I'm like, uh, okay. I can't see it. And, and she says, it's single lane alternating traffic. And I, I'm like, Okay. Should I turn around? And she's, we're here for your safety, sir. What? <laughs> and then I'm like, okay, should I turn around? 
And she, <laughs> and she says, you know, something else. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? And she looks oh, over at God. the other lady and says, no, I think you can go now. <laughs> so I like, what? I look behind what? me and I look to my right and I look, I, I start driving ahead. And then as I'm pulling up to the corner to take my left turn, the, um, the other flag lady, she, she says, can you believe this? <laughs> I feel like walking off the job. Can you call the company? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, it's not just me who's insane. That's good. <laughs> it's, uh, she, she, uh, she says, seriously, please call the company. And I'm like, uh, okay, well, um, I gotta go now. <laughs> Did you call the Because there's cars going left and right. She's not doing her job because the other lady's not doing her job. She's so frustrated by, by the fact that the lady's not using her sign. I, I I was thinking I must have done something wrong as I'm driving away, right? I, I must have done something wrong. I must not have seen the sign. Um, I probably didn't see it, uh, but it looked like a single lane alternating traffic situation I've encountered, you know, thirty thousand times in my thirty years of driving or whatever. How how could I not, you know, what did I do wrong in this case? I did nothing wrong. <laughs> the thing is, she she has a very simple job, which is to Show the sign or show yeah, the she, other side of the sign. She broke reality. She broke reality. And I was thinking, this is exactly the sort of situation that shows, like, as much as one can, that solipsism is completely ridiculous. Because most of the time when people are functioning and doing their job just normally, like, that's a very simple job to do. You know, you hold up the sign, you turn the sign the other way, you, you know, you make, you just turn it left and right, right? That's, it's pretty simple, but it's a crucial job. And if it doesn't get done, there's traffic snarls and accidents and danger, right? I think, I think it's also like one of the reasons why I love reading Philip K. Dick stuff exactly. is because I can totally imagine him in that situation. And then, you know, like from his, like, like what his wife Anne has written about him and stuff that this would go into one of his books for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> like, I guess it's also the reason why people love like Jerry Seinfeld, but Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> Philip K. Dick <laughs> put this stuff into their art. I've, I've never seen that conne- connection before, Marissa, but I, I dig it. Well, it's definitely yeah. noticing things <laughs> on a de- on a granular level that other like and taking things seriously on a granular level that other people never like. I, I it never but occurred just to really me. Really basic expectations to, as yeah, well. Like, I never thought about single lane or alternating traffic like I thought about it this week. Right? How how crucial it is. Mm-hmm. That you just wave your sign <laughs> and show it in one particular angle at a, you know at certain points. Like it, it, the thing is, is I I don't know what's going through her what, what was going through that first flag lady's mind. I totally understand what's going through the second lady's mind because that's how I would feel. Like she, uh, this is a very simple job. We have a simple job to do. It's crucial that we do our job, but people get hurt. <laughs> That's what's going through her mind. And she's making this impossible <laughs> because we have to work together. Right? That's why they have them in pairs, right? Uh, so, uh, uh, but w- what's going on in the first lady's mind? And my mom said, uh, she's on drugs. <laughs> I'm like, I guess that's possible, <laughs> right? But that, 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 uh, I don't think that that, exp- I don't think that that can be the only explanation. I think people are, you know, just weird too. I, I don't know. It, it is an explanation, but I don't know if it's a good one. But it, it, whatever was going on made sense to her. 
is what I'm thinking. And that's, that's why I thought that was an interesting anecdote. I, I do want to, before we end this, I, we got to talk about the desk. <laughs> desk is a great character. Oh, yeah. Um, this starts on the bottom of page 46. Um, at nine, uh, it's strange because, um, there's no page break here. There should be a page break, but it just continues from the previous paragraph. Um, at nine, the waiting room had been full of people and cigarette smoking. Notice cigarettes spelt with only one T. I don't know if that's science fiction spelling or, uh, yeah, yeah, it's just maybe an editor problem. It might be an editor problem. Because the wait, because waiting room is also smashed into one word. Yeah, but that, you know, that's a little more recent. It's at least spelled right. But I, it's just in the science fiction future is what I'm thinking. Cigarettes are special now. Full of people and cigarette smoke. Now at 3.30, it was almost empty. One by one, the visitors had given up and departed. Discarded tapes. That's interesting. Bulging. Mm-hmm. Ash- bulging ashtrays. Again, something we never see anymore, right? At least in offices. Empty chairs surrounded the robot desk industriously grinding out its mechanical business. But in one corner, sitting bolt upright, her small hands clasped around her purse, remained a last young woman. The desk hadn't been able to discourage. Apparently that's the job of the desk, is to discourage people. Encourage people for coming to see his ball. The desk tried once more. It was getting close to four. Egerton would be leaving soon. Would, would soon be leaving. The gross irrationality of waiting for a man about to put on his hat and coat and go home grated against the desk's sensitive nerves. Like Can you say you take it personally? Yeah, yeah. Like, but they, it's, she said, the, I, I was thinking the desk is a she, but I, the narrator didn't read it as a she. Um, cause she gets kind of, the desk gets kind of catty. <laughs> at one point. And also, that's a traditional 1950s, you know, receptionist job to yeah. be a female. The gross irrationality of waiting for a man about to put on his hat and coat and go home grated against the desk's sensitive nerves. And the girl had been sitting there since nine, eyes large and wide, gazing at nothing, not smoking or examining tapes. <laughs> What's with these tapes? I'm thinking like news, like, you know, like the, from the rhetoric of newspapers. I'm thinking like newspapers. Yeah, it's like magazines in a doctor's yeah. waiting office, right? Um, yeah. Only sitting and waiting. Look, lady, the desk said aloud, there's nobody going to see Mr. Egerton today. The which girl, which doesn't sound very female. Oh, that sounds like no. that's, that's, that's like it sounds very male and gruff. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. I totally thought of it as male as well. Yeah, I, 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 I see. It could be, I mean, it's neuter, really, but... Whatever. Mm. The girl smiled slightly. It'd only take a minute. The desk sighed. <laughs> You're persistent. What do you want? Your firm must be a, uh, do spectacular business with jobbers like you. But as I said, Mr. Egerton never buys anything. That's how he got where he is. By throwing people like you out. Ooh. Cat. <laughs> I suppose you think that figure of yours is going to get you a big order. That sounds like a woman, not like a man. Sorry. Uh, that sounds sexist, but I think that's male. Uh, not male. You ought to be ashamed gaze. wearing a dress like that, a nice girl like you. That's right. Uh, the desk added peevishly. You ought to be ashamed wearing a dress like that, a nice girl like you. So it sounds like an older matronly desk now. He'll see me, the girl answered faintly. The desk whizzed forms through its scanner and searched for a double entendre on the word C. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I suppose with a dress like that. 
<laughs> if you can. But at the moment, the inner door lifted and John Egerton appeared. So, um, great character. Yeah, <laughs> and then guest. and then the way the boss deals with it. He says, uh, John Egerton appeared, turn yourself off, he ordered the desk. And uh, now <laughs> it's not like a, you know, when you, I've got a, a remote control I can talk to and it says, you know, like I can say, turn whatever off. It's one of those Google devices, right? Um, when I say that, it just turns itself off. So in this case, it just keeps listening after it's been told to turn itself off. It, it's, like, knock off for the day is what he's saying to the desk, right? Right. Mavis, <laughs> go home for the day, Mavis. I'll see you again tomorrow at 10. Turn yourself off, he ordered the desk. I'm going home. Set yourself for 10. I'll be late tomorrow. The id block, ID, right? Id block right. is holding a policy level conference in Pittsburgh. And I have to, I have a few things to say to them while they're together. Um, now, I don't think this is ever, um, explicitly stated, we have to infer what he's going to do there, right? The girl slid to her feet. John Egerton was a huge ape-shouldered man. Uh, I was watching, uh, what's, what's, uh, Philip K. Dick's, Tessa Dick's wife, or Philip K. Dick's wife, mm-hmm. Tessa, her YouTube channel. I, mm-hmm. I sent it to you late last night, Marissa. Did you have a chance to look at it? I peeked at it and got scared. And I, I got scared too. Um, but one of the things that is interesting is she, she, it's just her radio show mostly, but she uses pictures of Philip K. Dick on unrelated matters. <laughs> like she's talking about aliens and Atlantis really? and stuff. Really? Yeah, That's but there's bizarre. photographs of Philip K. Dick, like, uh, playing with their, their, the sun. Um, and he's got his shirt off and he's, he's super hairy. <laughs> like he's got hairy arms, but he's also got like a hairy back. And so when uh, we've seen this hairy, uh, hairy beast before, um, we see it here in this, this character Egerton as well. Um, I just read it again. The girl slid to her feet. John Egerton was a huge ape shouldered man, shaggy and unkempt. This is like a very expensive businessman, right? His jacket hanging open and food stains. <laughs> Food stained, sleeves rolled up, <laughs> eyes deep set, and dark with industrial cunning. <laughs> he peered at her warily as she approached. And then they have a little uh, back and forth. Um, and then <laughs> I want, I'm doing this because I want to get to the desk again. Uh, here it is. Uh, for a man his size, he, was, he moved with astonishing agility. With one leap, he knocked the girl aside, dashed around the robot desk, and disappeared through a side exit from the office. The girl's purse clattered to the floor. And this is also a weird scene, because why do we need to see the contents of her purse? Um, I guess it's for plot purposes, but it's, it's Philip K. Dick, so it reminded me of... Um, what's that, the paycheck, right? You just get a list of items, right, that are random. Content spilling wildly. She hesitated between them and the door, then with an exasperated hiss, rushed from the office and out into the hall. The express elevator to the roof showed red. It was already on its way up 50 stories to the building's private field where he's about to take off. (laughs) Damn, the girl said. She turned and re-entered the office, seething with disgust. The desk had begun to recover. Why didn't you tell me you were an, an immune? <laughs> it demanded. Its outrage grew. The indignation of a bureaucrat. 
I gave you form SO45 to fill out, and line six distinctly asks for your specific, uh, your specific information on your occupation. You deceived me. <laughs> it's italicized. And then so this is the best line. This is the best line because it's, it reminds me of so many Philip K. Dick lines. The girl ignored the desk <laughs> and knelt down to collect her things. Um, that's that line from, uh, Colony. I trusted the rug completely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh my god. I love It's a very it. sensitive desk. <laughs> it is a bit of it it's a dick and it's also very sensitive. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh my god, I love reading Philokidic. I'm so glad I read this story. Yeah, it's really good. It is really good. I I I would have loved to have seen more of this world because um it's Me too. it's uh it's Brief. It's not even an hour long, right? Mm-hmm. Good, good, good stuff. Yeah, it's, and I feel like I like it even more now that we've talked about it and I've seen the, even more of Philip K. Dick in it, which mm-hmm. I was kind of suspecting, but now it's like, oh, yeah. Definitely. Definitely there. Definitely there. Um, Have you guys read World of Talent? No. I think so. Well, remind me of the plot. Um, it's There's a lot going on there, but it's, it's anti- Anti-mutants, and it, that's the main plot. Mm-hmm. Surrounds that, and and the world of talent is all these various mutants, post-humans, whatever you want to say, and there emerges the anti-tel, you know, anti-precog, anti-TK, whatever um, mutants that, and then it, it it kind of it's kind of like the first half of Ubik in a way, hmm. where there's that spy versus spy thing with the the people with these abilities and the people who can negate them, right? And of course, Ubik goes in a different way in the second half. But World of Talent kind of is, it's, it's, I think it's his, maybe his best and most well-developed of these stories about mutants. Is there an audio version, he asks? Yeah, there is. Looking at the there schedule? Is. There is. I've never listened to an audio version, I don't think, but it's a fairly long story. It's a, I think it's... I'm pretty sure there's. I'll pages. I'll dig that out if if we if yeah we, we, want to do we it. might as well put it on the schedule. Why mm-hmm. not? Mm-hmm. I it's, it deals with some of these themes, um, but it's got a lot of cool different mutants um, with different abilities. So it's got that kind of X Men thing going on. I, I think I, I think there's some real. Um, I mean, I, I don't know that the X Men were inspired by it because mutants are sort of a. I, I, mm-hmm. We we've talked about um, Slan before and. And that's, it's got a different vibe, I think, than this. But, um, I also want to point out Doris's last name is, uh, her husband's name, I guess. It's Sorel. Um, which is not, uh, you know, Philip K. Dick names are kind of weird, but, um, I just looked it up. It's a, it's basically a plant (laughs) that you use in salad, right? Um, (laughs) now, uh, this is another thing, is the plant theme. And I, I, I remember you talking about Evan talking about how um, there's the printers. I, I don't think he mentioned the printers, but they're, they're this, the machines that can make that can grow things, right? Was it, it the, the paper printer? Yeah, and then there's another autofac, right? So sometimes there's these machines that can make other print you up anything, right? And pay for the printer. That's the one with the aliens that are getting tired. <laughs> making bad copies, right? Yeah. I love that. Um, th- there is a plant theme going on, definitely 
the green thumb thing with Richards and that great opening. Um, but also her name is Sorrel. So I, I don't know that I've completely unlocked everything that's going on in this story, but it's very cool. Very, very cool. And there are points of brilliance in the writing here. Uh, I think the last one we recorded was, um, uh, Variable Man, right? And that, I don't remember it having any of those brilliant, you know, shiny gems of writing and not a lot of comedy either, which is what I love so much about Philo K. Dick stuff is, is that on top of the great ideas, there's some just gorgeous writing that, that makes you delight. Um, there, the, and so many t- little touches. Do, was it in, I think it might be in his first novel, um, uh, Solar Lottery, uh, that we get bed girls. Is that the word? Do you remember Solar Lottery? I can't remember. Well, well, I don't remember bed girls from there, but it might, it might not have been on the space station, yeah. Uh, well, th- that's, um, that's, uh, Crack in Space. Oh, Crack in Space. I think maybe in Crack in Space we have bed girls. I, I think it, I think it was in Solar Lottery, um, cause Solar Lottery's a weird, it's a very bizarre start, right, for a yeah. novel. He, he's uh, the main, uh, center of the universe on Earth is not now in Malaysia or something. And there's a world, you know, everybody's jet setting all over the place. Um, but yeah, he, uh, when he's going on his, um, I don't know, I'm going to die in 24 hours. He goes and gets all the best food in this story. And then he, he uh, goes and has sex with a whole bunch of bed girls. It sounds like, but it's all in less than an hour. So I, I, I don't. I think he's more like he's he's just trying to. What's so cool about this is he doesn't say what the psychology is. Like we don't know from the outside what's going on in Egerton's head, right? We only know what he does, and he doesn't even know what the mm-hmm. psychology is. So we see what he does. And it's almost like Philip K. Dick saying, yeah, I went on a bender. Um, I wonder what that means. <laughs> isn't, there, isn't there a novel? Yeah. I, I swear I heard Evan talking about this on his podcast. Um, there's a novel where he finds out his wife is pregnant and he, he decides, oh, that's um, uh, Game Players. No, Game Players of Titan? The one in California? Well, that's the one where pregnancy is so key. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think and he yeah, goes out on a bender. And he says, I'm going to yeah. get so drunk, I'm going to be sick. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is game place or type, type, yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's and, a central scene. And it's like, why? Why? <laughs> Cause it's, <laughs> it's the thing to do, right? Apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the, just the fact that there's this whole world outside of these people's heads and the, the, uh, the elite guy, Egerton, who's, who's in this position and Richardson, right? And then, why does the girl get invited? Because she's, uh, you know, an FBI agent, kinda, right? Really interesting. And then uh, there's, there is a whole, I hate saying stuff like this, but this is the kind of thing where if you're, if you're a writer looking for something to write about, go just look at the world background in here. Mm-hmm. Right? There's so much in there that's so interesting. Like, what would, it's not, it doesn't feel like a fascist dystopia for the people in the, who are not being called up. It's just a fascist dystopia when you get called before the House on American Activities Committee, right? Really interesting. 
Uh, oh, here's one question. Why is the title Misadjustment? Hmm. Because it's never mentioned, right? I was thinking it might, might be to do with, like, uh, readjustment. Like, almost like a psychological term. Yeah. And huh. then, like, he, he went to... Misadjustment to reality? Well, but uh, I don't think this is a real word. Like, mis... It's not a real word. Nobody says, I, I had a misadjustment, right? But readjustment is a word. And so I was thinking, like, it might be like he went to the psych- uh, the psychiatrist, right? The psychiatrist says, well, we got to readjust you now that you're doing whatever, right? And And then he sort of got on the bus or took the car and probably got on the bus at this point. And on the bus ride home, while he's picking up that paperback that he's going to read later... <laughs> <laughs> he he um he starts thinking readjustment yeah well what what if I had a misadjustment maybe that's what, what went wrong yeah or maybe he had a readjustment and then was like that was wrong yep and now I, <laughs> because that, I'm in the wrong I'm in the wrong if place. you apply it to the story it seems like they're the elites who run this society which is Richards and Eg- Egerton right um. And they, one of them works at the Commerce Institute, which sounds like it could be like a lobby group. Oh, I was thinking more like planned economy. It's definitely saying. something weird, right? It's 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 mm. not it's not like it. And then Richards um, has a ten-hour day, and I, I as soon as I read that first sentence, I think, oh, this is an Evan story because <laughs> it's about labor, yeah, labor. And not an eight-hour day, right? Um, and, well. What he's yeah. doing at home and what he's about to celebrate. Unless it's because what is getting adjusted in this story? It's the PKs, right? That's They're right. getting well. The elites want checked. to to well. Egerton wants to. Uh, he has this plan. He's going to go to the ID. What was the ID group called? ID. The ID block. ID block. Right. He wants to go to the id block, who are the other elites who run the society. Um, and they say, well, we can change this. Right? We can change yeah. this system. So he's looking for the correction. Yeah. We can make an adjustment. Um, I'm just seeing, I'm, I'm looking at text. So, so you're thinking maybe that maybe, maybe his idea at the end would be a misadjustment because, you know, here, yeah. Guard, yeah, yeah, who guards the. Who guards the guards, and this is not going to be a... the Watchman, yeah. Right. Um, this is on page 52 in the second column. Um, as I see... Oh, yeah, I've even highlighted here. As I see it, Townsend said quietly, leaning forward, his fingers pressed together, it's not really a question of can we neutralize agency, the agency, which makes me think of the FBI rather than, uh, you know, some other agency... Collectively, we're the economic battery of the NIPLAN system. If we draw the props out from under the agency, it collapses. The real question is, do we want to write off the agency? Egerton croaked wildly. Good God! Another Philip K. Dick phrase. <laughs> it's either us or them. Can't you see? They're using this net check and the probe system to undermine us. And I was thinking this is um, sort of the dirty, dirty secret of of the FBI, right, that was going on at the time. Uh, you know, they're investigating everybody, but um, 
uh, J. Edgar Hoover is actually running the country in a certain sense, right? Governments come and go, presidents come and go, administrations come and go. Ed, J. Edgar Hoover is permanent. He's the deep state of that period where, you know, he determines what's legal and what's not legal. When it's inconvenient, it's, it's, uh, illegal to do it. And when it's convenient, it's legal to do it. And that's basically how he ran things. Um, and then the story continues. Egerton Croke Bodley. Not just, uh, sorry, go for yeah, it. Yeah, I'll, I'll finish the point and then I'll okay. jump in. Egerton Croke Wildly. Good God, it's either us or them. Can't you see they're using the net check probe system to undermine us? Townsend glanced at him and then continued for the benefit of the other leaders. Perhaps we're forgetting something. We set up the agency in the first place. That is, the id block before us worked out the fundamentals of random net check inspection. Use of obtained telepaths, the final notice, and hunt the whole works. The agency is out, out, it's for, uh, it says out protection. It's probably our protection. Otherwise, parakineticists would grow like weeds and finally choke us off. Of course, we must keep control of the agency. It's our instrument. Mm-hmm. And, and so, uh, Egerton's, ultimate plan and he he almost convinces them right that we uh, and he talks about how richardson uh everybody it was obvious right to everybody that richardson was was um off or richards sorry was off um when he showed the plant and didn't realize that that, that was a weird thing um yeah i, I was thinking that that uh, that's a very like most of the time, we know very well what other people expect of us, right? We, we're mm-hmm. so ingrained in our society, so we know very, very well what other people. We never have such, very rarely have situations where you you show somebody. <laughs> that's sort of a scene for movies, right? Where in Pulp Fiction, they open the basement door and you find a gimp in a box, right? It's not. It's yeah. Not, it's that's not the normal. Right. Yeah. Or you pull up, and someone doesn't show their sign that they're meant to be shown. Exactly. That's mm-hmm. that's the aberration, the strange mm-hmm. aberration. So, but the fact that she, like, even I didn't re- react the way the characters react in this story, where they they kill the aberrant and they run off uh, in all directions because they're frightened. But. Um, I can, uh, we have the instinct maybe to do, to run off. That's, uh, that's why I guess I kept saying the same thing over and over again. I was saying, should I turn around? <laughs> I don't mean to be dealing with this crazy person. Um, after I realized she's, she's off. Anyways, um, <laughs> I, I just, I, I, I think it's really interesting that this, that there's this story so rich. It's so rich and it's really short. Mm-hmm. For its richness. What were you going to say, Evan? Oh, because you were talking about uh, J. Edgar Hoover, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that certainly hinted at in a lot of that. That the FBI hinted in a lot, talked about in a lot of Philip Dick stories in various mm-hmm. ways, right? But I, I think of uh, other examples of institutionalized power that actually do change our our reality in substantial ways. And I think of someone like Robert Moses, maybe even as more relevant to this conversation, Who, right? Robert An unelected Moses? person, Robert Moses. He was in New York, like in the New York State, like 
urban planning stuff. I don't quite know what his position was, but it was an elected position, and he was there for decades and decades. And mm. he's the one who decided where the parkways went and where the highways went right. you know, in the 50s and 60s. And there's a great book about it called The Power Brokers. Robert Carroll wrote it. It's a real thick biography. But that's the main theme of the book is just how much power was in this office because he literally decided the fate of whole communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dick really thinks this way about urban space, That's especially right. in suburbia, but more broadly. You think of novels like um, Cosmic Puppets, uh, Penultimate Truth, or stories like Adjustment Team and Small Town, another adjustment, which are all yeah. some way or another about forces manipulating our physical space around us. Mm-hmm. And, and there's something like the idea that there's some kind of state agency there controlling our reality. And um, I, I want to point out... That's why I like about the story so much is that it's it's the people who are tweaking the reality here in little ways, Mm. you know, and I think that's a little bit more empowering that that's then than the kind of the bleakness of just these gods changing our world around us without our will, without our decision. The the resistance is implied in the story. I think Mm. we ourselves are the gods. Yeah. And that's why I like that ending. That's decision that we have this power and we can regulate ourselves. We don't need the state agency to do that. You know, there are going to be ideas that are crazy and outside the mainstream, but you don't need the FBI. You don't need the state telling us which ideas are are wrong. We can decide that for ourselves. I want to point out that the, um, uh, this is, it's possible that one of the reasons they got a visit from the FBI, um, is because they were attending public meetings, um, about exactly that sort of thing. Um, Philip Kinnick and his wife were going to, to uh, school, it wasn't school board meetings, but it was school um, funding meetings, public meetings, and writing letters to the newspaper and getting involved. And apparently, his wife is attending communist meetings, right? Um, yeah. And, and so it's like, yeah, we, it's the, pr- it's the pressure of, oh, you're going to go that way. Well, we'll just send some people over to you, right? Like, it, and the way it works is how. How did how did they get on that? Well, somebody informed, right? Somebody says she's a communist and she's coming to the meetings, right? She's coming mm-hmm. to public meetings, and so they have to go because that's their job to investigate. Especially in 1954, <laughs> everybody's communists, right? Um, they show up at the door, knock knock. We need to talk to you and your wife. More importantly, your wife. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then that that um, that pressure. Is it's really interesting what he does with it, right? It's most people they just go about their life and continue on in this, like oh yeah, that one time. But um, he uses everything. Yeah. So interesting. And obsesses about everything. Mm-hmm. Thinks about it endlessly, over and over, chewing on it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we chewed on this enough. Yep. Mm-hmm. Good, good. All right. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. All right. So uh, I did get a uh, message from Marissa. Uh, it wasn't on her calendar. She was upset. <laughs> 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 so, um, I have to be better about. I, I'm so busy uh, being angry on Twitter right now. Um, 
I gotta be more zen about stuff and uh, make sure I I let people know better <laughs> what's on the schedule. Let me see about this. Okay. Well, what is your thoughts on the World Fantasy Award? Because it's not uh, named after Lovecraft. Yeah. It's just a bust, right? That so, they took uh, out. The bust was kind of ugly anyway. Yeah, what, uh, well, that, uh, what's funny is one of the recipients refused it because he, he, he really liked Lovecraft. <laughs> and he thought that the, oh. the, the, the statue was a um, uh, was uh, not flattering, right? Uh, my feeling is that awards are stupid and that nobody should pay any attention to them because it's the same way, uh, like, reviews with star ratings, I think is a huge mistake. I think mm-hmm. that if you say this is that, you sort of get, it's a trap that you get. Um, it's a it's a very dangerous way of thinking, I think. It's like it's like saying uh, uh, strawberries are better than blueberries. Fucking, there's no argument there. That's not an argument. Uh, I mean, you can argue it, but if you say I give strawberries five out of five strawberries, I give blueberries <laughs> two out of five strawberries. What? What are you talking about? That's stupid. And then comparing two books, I mean, you can say one book is better than another book, but giving them ratings is not an argument, right? And so votes are kind of like that. Um, so I, I'm, big not, I'm not a big fan of awards at all. I think prizes are slightly different because there's actual money involved, but mm-hmm. they're also subject to gaming in the same way that they are. So I, I have no... I mean... I think it's I think it's silly that people are going around being upset about Lovecraft being racist when he, it was from a time period when I mean he literally didn't murder anybody as far as I can tell not a single person didn't even kill himself right uh, one of the one of the ones that came up was um, people were saying James Triptree Jr. is a murderer right. Um, and she didn't respect herself enough to give her, uh, you know, it's a, she's a woman, yet we, the James Triptree Award is for a man. And, uh, and I said, well, you know, Philip K. Dick Award, Philip K. Dick oh, didn't kill anybody either, but he, he did wave a gun at people, and he was kind of mean to some people sometimes, and he was a liar, right? Um, yeah, so maybe, maybe it's not a good idea to name awards after individuals. Um, I think that that's probably pretty wise. Um, but don't have awards at all is what I would say, but we're not going to stop it. So I, I have no opinion other than I don't think you should ever say somebody's a fascist. Who isn't an actual, like Mussolini was a fascist. <laughs> um, my understanding is that Franco was a fascist, but I haven't looked into it. Like really, like I really don't know that much about Franco at all. Really. I know a ton about Mussolini and I, I know a ton about Hitler and both of those guys are fascists. Pretty sure about that. Right. I'm 99.9% sure that if that number is, you know, I'm very confident, with high confidence, I can say that um, John W. Campbell was not a fascist. He was just an asshole and an idiot, a fucking idiot in many ways. And I think that that's, it's, it's kind of like... Um, well, he had too much belief in progress to be a fascist. Fascists have that... He was racist, absolutely, and, and more importantly, a chauvinist, right? Like that rejection of progress, all you know, entirely. Uh, but I, I think, like a lot of people, have serious, serious, 
problems. And, uh, and what, you know, judging what a smart person is and a stupid person is, there's a guy named Penn Gillette. You guys know this guy? He's a juggler. Yeah, so he's an atheist and a juggler, and he's a libertarian, which tells you something. <laughs> um, I think his biggest problem is he's a rationalist, right? <laughs> I, I don't know if I ever told you guys this, but uh, there's a um, one of my old philosophy professors. Um, I was trying to understand the difference between empiricists and rationalists, and he's just getting frustrated because I wasn't getting it. Um, uh, and he says, well, Jesse, um, rationalists are nice folks, but I wouldn't let my daughter marry one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> and then eventually I sort of I got the idea and I, I I think I firmly grasp it. But basically rationalists they work out whole worlds in their heads and then they just assume that that's how things are. Um and it takes a like a huge sea change for them to to change. And that's it's just sort of a default operation. And I, that's how I see yeah. Pendulette's mind, because he, you know, he has, to be a libertarian, you have to s- sort of, I mean, there, there are really good things about libertarianism, but it's, it's uh, mostly in regard to the fact that there's bad ideology that it is opposed to, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I would say... I don't. I don't know how I got on that topic. <laughs> Campbell being a fascist. Yeah. Not being a fascist. Yeah. No, I. I don't think he was a fascist. I. I mean. It, yeah. I, I think that word gets. It's, it's too recklessly used. Yes. Yeah, oh, apparently Michael Moorcock called him that, or something. I think it was Michael Moorcock. But uh, you know, people. People who say that. Um, it, is they're using it as a pejorative, right? So people say that about Trump too. Or you know, white nationalist. I don't think. I mean, I don't think he's as. Uh, he, he's a. He's he's not. He has no ideology. <laughs> you know, there's no. It's just me, and my feelings, and and anything that anything that agrees with me is cool, and anything that doesn't uh, is not cool. And uh, so I think what happened to Campbell is he was put in a position. Um, being editor for a long time and that makes you sort of comfortable and set in your ways and this is sort of what I see is happens to columnists too you know like you're writing a column what do you do you write all the time and nobody says no you're wrong you fucked up <laughs> they just keep writing and they have to keep writing and so they keep spinning up new ideas and building on those old ideas and they just get wronger and wronger in a certain sense because there's no humbling and there's no um because uh, how do you how do you end up going after like the dean drive and and dianetics like where's your skepticism gene there's like where's your doubt you should have more of that it helps you makes you smarter so you're not as susceptible to being fucking fooled and making a fool of yourself right mm-hmm. But Which pro- probably have you means he's Echo's definition of fascism. Hmm. I think Echo's definition of fascism is yeah. Somebody good. somebody pointed out that uh, Campbell had a whole really bunch good. of them, and because a lot of times people define fascism kind of superficially, like 
like what the movements look like mm. instead of like actually the ideas behind it. And I, I like Echo's 14 points of fascism uh, because it focuses more on actually the ideas behind it. And Campbell's not this. Campbell doesn't reject or he doesn't have the cult of tradition. Rejection of modernism. All right. Was no. it? Uh, fear of difference. This is not. But then, uh, but uh, the uh, yeah. I think somebody pointed this out to me on Twitter and said that Campbell had at least several of them, right? Um, yeah. And and the thing is, is they're using the the uh, DSMV or oh no, what's it called? Uh, diagnostic manual for they're using that sort of diagnostic, uh, like he's got a <laughs> disease. <laughs> um, I. Uh, uh, I always just think of the symbol, the fasci, which is one of the American symbols too, right? Whereas, like, you, you, we're stronger together if you don't fucking conform and be bound up. Um, uh, you will be hit by the stick rather than be part of the stick. And but that's the problem. Even leftists will use that that language, right? The, the union, solidarity, forever. I mean, it doesn't have the image necessarily of the faggot, but it, right. It, the you know it's still this idea of the union makes us strong, but you know certainly the labor movement wasn't fascist. Yeah, so here's what it says: the term fascist is fascist, fascist as a pejorative, has been used as a pejorative regarding various movements. Blah blah blah. That's the way she used it, uh, the ing lady. Um, and the reason I feel so confident saying it is because she said uh, "fucking fascist," right? So she's angry, which is legit. I understand about being angry. But she just doesn't know what the fuck she's talking about, too, right? She, when she wrote that speech on her phone, she says, um, she wrote Amazing Stories. He was the editor of Amazing Stories. And then when she spoke her speech, she said, editor of Amazing Stories. As, as the editor of Amazing Stories, he was doing X, Y, and Z. She just doesn't know enough about what he actually said or like i don't know mm -hmm. if she read the book uh alec novella lee i bet she heard that he was a jerk um and racism is associated with fascism sure it can be but it is not equivalent to fascism and being an asshole or a misogynist uh but more importantly just a chauvinist that's really that's a good word that doesn't get used very much right uh chauvinist i'm gonna just look it up here an attitude of superior towards members of the opposite sex, that's one. Undue partiality or attachment to a group or a place which belongs, to which one belongs or has belonged, right? So he's a chauvinist for America. He's a chauvinist for um, science. He's a chauvinist for men and, and the white race, if there is such a thing, right? Well, he thought there was. Um, so, yeah, he's definitely, but, uh, like, he was on America's team during World War II, fighting against fascism, right? So I, I, I just don't think... I think it's just... What's funny is that uh, the everybody who agrees with her doesn't... Ex well, the, there's, a, there's an article or essay by um, the guy who wrote Amazing Stories, uh, editor of the modern Amazing Stories, and he... Um, he supports her, even though he asked her to fix the fact that it was astounding that had the problem and not amazing. And then um, uh, John Scalzi wrote a massive essay um, 
which supports her position as well. But not, not neither of those people actually agree with the idea that he was technically a fascist. They just agree that John W. Campbell has a problematic legacy, right? And then, you know, he had bad ideas, you know, he supported bad things. But uh, lots of people have bad ideas and have bad legacies. It doesn't mean uh, they're fascists. So, just important important point. Don't call people, like, if I, if I said to you, Evan, you're a fascist. <laughs> I can't even say it as straight. Um, it, you would... Um, you would probably take that as uh, not a description of your behavior. You'd probably take that as an insult, right? And and what's yeah. funny is if you look at the way Ing talks, she talks about like sh- we these guys have to be defeated. He's fucking dead, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not like that. like maybe you say we ha- we should take those statues of um, of uh, you know criminals down, or you know people who are fought on the wrong side of the war uh, completely uh, right I would say you know and I have no opinion about them changing it to astounding other than it's a bad idea to have uh, have um, awards in general fine and I, I think there was a, another maybe it was in that amazing uh, editor's piece talking about um, uh, prizes uh, like the Nobel Peace Prize, right? Nobel's in his name, but it's actually, it was his money. <laughs> so it kind of makes sense to keep it in there was, uh, the Booker Prize and the Man Booker Prize, right? That was, th- those are actual money, right, to come out. But uh, they're game too, and and they're fucking political as hell, right? The uh, um, Obama got, uh, let's see, just became president, and then they give him the Nobel Peace Prize, and then he goes on to bomb eight countries and kill Americans with those bombs. And and kids, it's like, well, that's not a, that, you shouldn't give a Peace Prize to a guy because he gave a nice speech. But it's not my money, so whatever. I don't know. What are your guys' thoughts? Well, I, so back when I was working on a lecture on history of like the ideas of fascism from a world history course. This was back before the Obama in the Obama years. You type in fascism and you go on Google and you go to the images. Of course you get the Hitler pictures and everything, but if you scroll through, you would find a bunch of pictures of Obama or the Democratic Party. Oh sure, sure. And then or Bush, right? Or Sarah Palin. Like Sarah Palin a fascist? What? Um, yeah, she has no ideology. <laughs> yeah. But now it's mostly Trump. I just did oh. it on Bing. So I don't yeah, have Google yeah. right now. But it's mostly Trump. You can find a few Democratic Party ones and then all the Hitler stuff. Yeah, Here's one of Stalin. He's definitely not a fascist. Yeah, I, I think... Because I actually th- worry about... That fascism could emerge. I, I think there are elements that are sympathetic to fascism. But you got to know what it is to critique it and to talk about it if you just throw the term around i think orwell said the same thing in mm. the politics of the english language right mm. that that's it's just that these terms get so politicized that they can become kind of meaningless mm-hmm. and that's dangerous because these words actually do have meaning they or do. The, the history and the context you know they're real things that they're trying to describe and if you can't describe them anymore then 
what can you do? Terrence? Here. Trump and Cornell West, just a picture of him. <laughs> uh, Trump and Cornell West, when you, ter- when you put fascism into Bing and you go to photos. Wow. I don't know. Well, I, I don't think even Cornell West is. I, that's not a word he would likely use. I no, I, I don't know if he, did he ever. He may have. I, I mean, could believe. I, it, I could he, he would describe actual fa- fascists. He would describe actual fascists as fascists. I'm sure. Yeah. But he, he's pretty. He's pretty careful with the way he talks, and. Um, I mean, it, it's amazing to me that he can go on to Bill Maher's show. Um, there's mm-hmm. a, that's a, Bill Maher is exactly the kind of guy uh, I was talking about. With you know, they get into a position they can't be quite. Uh, they're they've been there so long. Like Bill Maher got kicked off of regular TV for saying something actually correct, right? Which was nine eleven uh, hijackers were not cowards. Right. <laughs> the reason he got in trouble for that is because that was not good speech. It makes it sound like what they did was okay. But that's not what he was saying. He was saying they're technically not cowards, right? They went and did something that uh, would be pretty hard to do, which is kill yourself. Um, uh, and, yeah, it was evil, for sure. But cowards? No. Right? It's not, it, was it a cowardly act? I guess you could call it that. But the individuals were not cowards, right? So there's a, a, a logic to have words having meaning. But now everything's Russia, Russia, Russia. <laughs> um, completely detached from reality. Like there's, you know, that that whole uh, Russia. I I I instinctively get upset and worried when people use the word gate on the end of things. The name of the the reason it's called Gate is because that's part of the name of the hotel, right? <laughs> Watergate. It wasn't like uh, now there's Pants Gate or Gaff Gate or you can't just put gate, gate on the end of a word and make it a a thing, right? Because words have meaning, <laughs> mm-hmm. and yet if you are about you know controlling the media and such, you can do whatever the fuck you want. So to me, I think the biggest issue is that. Um, a person who was technically wrong about two things um, got a huge response, um, and the thing changed. I think that's that's a, a mistake on the part of of um, everybody to react that way, right? Um, they shouldn't. They, I mean, whether they change the name of the award or not doesn't bother me because uh, I don't believe awards are a good idea. I think it makes sense if if you want to have a policy not to name awards after people, maybe that makes sense. I guess I I don't I don't know. Um institutions could probably be sullied that I I don't really know or care. Um the important part is she she didn't know what the name of the magazine he edited was. Right? And she didn't know enough about what he what actually was. I think she was just angry uh, that he was uh, more importantly than anything, he was a white man, right? That's that's what she was talking about. Um, she's also apparently into um, the idea that you shouldn't. Uh, I guess it's cultural appropriation. You shouldn't uh, write about things you're not personally experienced about, and I think that is a really bad idea too. Um, yeah, you shouldn't that's, be like that's pseudo really empiricism uh, for me. Say again. That's pseudo empiricism for me. 
oh. the idea empiricism is based on experience right but the idea that you can only write about your own experience which you probably don't even uh perceive or understand very clearly mm-hmm. um is a pseudo empiricism so i think evan at the beginning said that he was um uh, going towards a, a william james mm-hmm. sort of outlook which of religious which experience is, which is radi- also radical empiricism a radical empiricism is none of this sort of dogmatic um, pre-packaging of experience. So, uh, if I could speak lightly, because there there are different ways you can speak when you talk about fascism. So, today it's an abstraction. Um, and whereas if you've got any historical knowledge, it's really precise and you can't say that the fascists are the same as the Nazis and so on. But uh, on a loose uh, uh, usage of fascism, I would say that her accusing John W. Campbell of being fascist is itself more fascist than he was. I agree. I agree because it, it's it's about... And, and if you if yeah. you called me a fascist and I took you seriously, I wouldn't think that you were saying that I I, I, I dress up uh, in military <laughs> uniform and I try and get rid of the uh, um, foreigners in, in my country. Right. I would uh, think, uh, am I being that dogmatic? Am I being that mm. e- egotistical? What have I what have I been doing or saying mm. lately? I would. Um, what is? Uh, am I really being really narrow in the type of examples I'm using? I would take it on a sort of um, uh, sort of global, general set of of criteria, and I, um, but then I wouldn't take that sort of talk from from just anyone. Mm. So, mm-hmm. but I would look for a concrete content to what you say. If you said but, it, which you, which you won't. There's this, this kind of colloquial term, fascist, which we all know what it means. Mm. Kind of just, it's an insult word, or, or is what yeah, I think of it as. Well, but it doesn't have to be an insult. It could be colloquial without being an insult, I think. How? Well, as I said, if you call me a fascist, I would get worried about what, I, what my attitude has been like. It could... What would your if attitude thought, have to have been like? It, w- it would have well, to depends. be. Well, uh, depends. If I thought you had a concrete content when you said it, and it wasn't just um, saying uh, shit or, or whatever. So there's the historical, um, <laughs> technical term. There's the colloquial term, and that can go through all sorts of shades of meaning, from just pure insult to. Uh, it depends on what we've read. Um, uh, Deleuze and, and Guattari use uh, fascist, and they mean it's when desire has been turned against itself to desire its own uh, repression. But what that means is really complicated. <laughs> that means you could identify with some superior value and think you are the um, uh, avatar of, of that value. It could mean that you take metaphors um, that are meant to be poetic and you take them really literally and you apply them um, by the book in practice or it could mean uh, 30 other things. Mm. So 
Um, and saying you're a fascist would mean you exemplify uh, 20 out of the 30 things that we all know we mean when we, we say that to someone. So it could only ever be, uh, couldn't be a public statement in that case, or because you wouldn't get that much shared um, uh, consensus on what it means concretely to be a fascist when it's not a historical technical term but it's a sort of a psychological term. So you couldn't really use it with a lot of people. You could only use it in sort of uh, on the small scale. But I, I think just because it's colloquial, it doesn't have to be an insult and it doesn't have to be um, empty of content. Mm. Uh, she also talked about Hong Kong, which I don't know a ton about, but I did hear a very interesting podcast about um about it was a moderate rebels podcast i don't know if you guys have heard of it it's a pretty interesting podcast um uh they were talking about like who who wins what and what what's going on um do you have any insight into that being in china what what's the official word well what i learned over the summer mm-hmm. it's, it's i haven't learned much in china about this, I've talked to some Chinese people about it, and they, they pretty much all think basically what, what they've heard from the media here, which is the protesters are all violent, and violence is bad. Mm. So they, violence they, is have, bad. they don't have any concept, concept of struggle, what they're actually protesting about. Mm-hmm. But what really interested me this summer was I didn't realize how many on the left in America, and this is just kind of from this is the Facebook left, so. Mm-hmm take it for what it is, but how many are opposing the protests? Because they see really China as some kind of sustainable socialist model. Hmm. I didn't know how, like, many people seem to buy that. Like, I, I do think that, like, a independent Hong Kong would be just a capitalist bastion, and it wouldn't be a worker's paradise. doesn't mean that the People of Hong Kong aren't don't have like materialist components to their struggle, right? Especially a lot of the young people in Hong Kong are talking about things like rents mm-hmm. and stagnant wages and these uh, these kind of leftist issues, right? And it's very complex. But um, I was just surprised how many people on the left in America seem to see the protest as the Chinese see them, which is kind of as a CIA. Operation. Well, the th- uh, it's interesting that Moderate Rebels podcast was talking about the history of um, of the government of Hong Kong and and how much housing they were building, right? So, yeah. um, the fact that uh, housing costs are incredibly high there um, is in large part due to the fact that it used to be that prior to it being a democracy, which was uh, prior to like 1990, <laughs> right, yeah. or 1990 and earlier is uh, when it wasn't a democracy. Um, They were building a lot of, um, you know, public housing a lot. And then when they transitioned to to quote-unquote democracy, um, they reduced that amount of public housing being built, and yet the population kept growing and growing, right? Um, And that's where you get kind of a a bit of a nativism in the protest, too, where it's a lot of Chinese immigrants have come in. Yeah, and the the language that was being described and, um, and like, 
So she talked about, uh, I, I'll read what she wrote in her speech here, skipping past the uh, sentence that has fascist in it. Through his editorial control of astounding science fiction, that has been retconned to say astounding science fiction. Um, he is responsible for setting a tone in science fiction that still haunts the genre to this day. I would say that's true. Um, sterile. That's a sentence. Um, yeah, I would say that that's, I can see that. Male. I think that that's true. I'm not sure that he was the cause of that, because males are much more interested in science fiction as a general rule, um, at least back then. I don't think that that, uh, like just reading the letters, a lot more women wrote to Weird Tales than they did to uh, to uh, Astounding and uh, Amazing. Well, I don't think Amazing had a letter column, but whatever. Um, exalting in the ambitions of imperialists and colonizers. Yes, that is true. Settlers and industrialists. Yes, I agree with that. And then she says, yes, I am aware there are exceptions. Okay. But these bones we, uh, but these bones we have grown wonderful but these bones, okay. But these bones, we have grown wonderful ramshackle genre, wilder and stranger than his mind could imagine or allow. It's definitely uh, spread out, for sure. And I think that that was happening just as you see with Galaxy. And I am so proud of this part, uh, to be a part of this, to share with you my weird little story. I haven't read it, um, her novel. Um, by the way, it's not a science fiction novel. It's a fantasy novel, as far as I can tell. It's about fairies and incest. Um, to share with you my weird little story, an amalgam of my weird interests, so much of which has little to do with my superficial identity and labels. But I am a spinner of ideas of words, as Margaret Cavendish would put it. So I need to say, I was born in Hong Kong, right now in the most cyberpunk city in the... In the, the most cyberpunk... In the city, in the world, protesters struggle with masked, anonymous stormtroopers. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> of an autocratic empire. Uh, so she, it sounds like she's saying that China is fascist, <laughs> which is interesting, because I guess it could be considered that if you... But well, I think it's it's the Hong Kong police. The PLA has yeah, a, but empire is uh-huh. what. It, so it's if it's if you know, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's capital E empire. I assume that yeah, it is the Hong Kong police, right? The, the Chinese. Are, they're not lackeys. PLA of, is not there. Really, I mean, the government of Hong Kong since. The, the handover has been pretty much pro-Beijing people, and I'm not sure China would allow uh, the pro-democracy camp to to have to to be the executive. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I just I'm keying in on the word stormtroopers because that makes us think of not just Star Wars stormtroopers, but actual mm-hmm. fascist stormtroopers, which you know literally is not fascist because they had stormtroopers in World War One, and they were not fascist then. But whatever, it is a word that is associated with. They have literally just held their largest illegal gathering in their history. As we speak, they are calling for a horological revolution. What does horological mean? H-O-R-O-L-O-G-I-C-A-L. Horological? Horological. I don't know what that means. According to the clock? Okay. Horological revolution in our time. They have held laser pointers to the skies and tried to impossibly... S- set alight the stars. So I'm taking that as a metaphor. 
<laughs> I cannot help but be proud of them to cry for them and to lament their pain. My understanding is that one of the things uh, they were doing with the laser pointers is pointing them at the uh, eyes of the police uh, when they were trying to come out of their, um, uh, I don't want to say bunker, what's the, uh, it's not a station, it's where, it's like a police residence, I don't know, barracks, I think it is. Um, so they like there was stuff lit on fire outside of the police station. And they were trying to put it out, and whenever they came out, they pointed laser pointers in their eyes. Um, so not so much setting the stars alight, but you know this is uh, yeah. It's is it worse than uh, shooting bullets at people? Absolutely, it's not worse, right? <laughs> but um, it's not nothing either. I'm sorry to drag you into our uh, this. I'm sorry to drag this into our fantastical words. I think she means worlds. You've given me a microphone, and this is what I felt I need saying. And then do the hat thing. She has her hair go to the right or whatever. Um, and then amazing stories change to astounding stories. So it was designed to be inflammatory, I guess. Or maybe she it's just how she she felt. But... It, what, what's so shocking is that getting stuff uh, technically wrong. I guess there was a there was a, a there were a number of people who are defending Campbell as uh, worthy of being honored or something like that. A fascist? No. Asshole? Yes. <laughs> I like that word. I, I use it a lot. Asshole. What a fucking I'm asshole! Thinking of, your, thinking of the history of words, like. Like if we wanted to take on Bancroft, he like the major history prize is this guy Bancroft, and mm-hmm. he was a New Englander, elitist, you know, he totally oblivious about women's history, African American history. From, but you don't have this drama in in history prizes. <laughs> uh, well, the Philip K. Dick Award uh, that's for new paperback. I don't. Uh, I don't, I don't know who administers that. I don't pay attention to any of that stuff. Um, but uh, I don't, I don't think he could like uh, Lovecraft. Uh, Philip K. Dick was absolutely not racist, as far as I could tell. He did deal with some race stuff in some of his stories, but he was he was basically, as far as I can tell, he's pretty anti-racist, yeah. right? Bit skeptical of the Black Panthers, but <laughs> yeah, he had some weird. He had some weird. Um, pro- he wrote some good civil rights stuff. That was it. Martians come in clouds, and he had some pro-government stuff. Uh, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> like that yeah. was like stuff that was on the right side of history in terms of civil rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing to think about is hey, is, is is who's uh, like. He, he, he wasn't a. Fa- I don't think he was a fascist. Like I, I tweeted a uh, a column of his from 1938. I think it was maybe it's 36. Uh, uh, him talking about how yeah, here it is. John David Campbell editorial from Astounding, April 1938. It's entitled Democracy, and it starts. A magazine is not an autocracy, as readers tend to believe, ruled arbitrarily by editorials' opinions editor's opinions. It is a democracy by the reader's votes, the editor serving as an election board official. The authors are the candidates, their style and stories, their platform. 
I can't and won't print all the letters received. If I devoted half the pages of the magazine to that alone, I could not publish all of them. But neither are all the votes of that political election published. Instead, a summary of the views can and will be given. The flood of letters that has resulted from the restoration of brass tax, that's the letters column. Um, and mm-hmm. also, uh, he called it the uh, House of Controversy, which I think is interesting. Um, anyways, has been immensely helpful in forming the direction of a continued expansion of Astounding. Those new authors I'm seeking you know, there are many th- trying now, many new names coming in on manuscripts. Which type of author shall I encourage the most? Which style of writing? This is an expansion of a supply that must be directed according to the votes of readers. New artists are being tried to. Next month, the cover will illustrate Jack Williamson's great new concept, Mutant Story, The Legion of Probability. Uh, that cover is the result of a contest among the artists Astounding has been us- using, but not in color work. Color is definitely a different medium. I believe we need more variety of technique on those covers, and this will be an answer to that feeling. I want votes on that. In the past three issues, I've introduced M. Shear, John Victor Peterson, Kent Casey, and now Lester Del Rey. Uh, remembering the, those four new names and their four new stories, you will notice no two of them are vaguely similar in style. That is added variety, but which variety is most popular? As to features, do you like the present radi- radiation in uniform type of article, heavily illustrated with an exten- extensive captions, or do you prefer straight text articles? That really is a triple vote. Heavy or light illustrations and a separate vote on the quality of the article McKay produced. It would be unfair to rate McKay's material on the basis of reaction to the illustrated makeup. Not only are new authors helped by readers' guidance, but old ones too. John Russell Fern's Red Heritage was much, much better liked than was his Dark Eternity. Your vote showed that, and Fearn has been given the results. Nat Sh- Sh- Shackner's Past, Present, and Futures series has been astoundingly liked. Therefore, he is working on another, which may be available next month. For astounding at any rate, is not a dictatorship. So that's about as anti-fascist as you can get uh, in terms of um, magazine editorial. And what I think is interesting is, you know, he did keep the magazine afloat for a long time, uh, longer than a lot of other science fiction, uh, science fiction magazines. And he did it basically by catering to his audience Exactly, you know, you want more of this? We'll do that. Now, I, whenever I pick up an old astounding, I, I don't normally read the editorials because he's a fucking nut job. And the editorials are not interesting to me because he's just wrong about stuff and he's long winded. Um, but on the other hand, I do flip through and look at the stories. So, do you have a link to this editorial? Oh, uh, yeah, I, it's, a, uh, it's a Twitter thing. I'll send it to you right now. Okay. I can read you one example of a use of um, fascism that's okay, but in fact, it's really complicated. Um, one of the books that I like by Deleuze and Guattari is called Anti Oedipus. Mm-hmm. It was published in 1972, and then a couple of years later, Michel Foucault wrote a, uh, a preface in which he sort of summarized. Um, uh, the major points for him, yeah. for yeah, his yeah, own ideas. Uh, the what? fucking machine, shitty machine stuff. Yes. 
right. but the big difference is between um, the paranoiac machine and which is a fascist machine and the the um, uh, schizophrenic uh, machine which is a revolutionary machine and they're things that they dropped later it was only useful at a certain time um, because they were saying after May 68 that the Marxists and the revolutionaries who uh, found themselves so revolutionary had the same sort of um, uh, defects as the the fascists that they saw everywhere and were denouncing everywhere. So Foucault says, he lists three points, and he says, last but not least, the major enemy, the strategic adversary, is fascism, um, and not only historical fascism, the fascism of Hitler and Mussolini, which was able to mobilize and use the desire of the masses so effectively, but also the fascism in us all, in our heads mm. and in our everyday behavior, the fascism that causes us to love power, to desire the very thing that dominates and exploits us. So it sounds like uh, um, he can um, call anyone he mm. doesn't like a fascist, mm -hmm. but in fact, he's um, already criticizing the people who use fascism as um, uh, an insult word and yeah. saying that they have this thing inside them um, which is similar to what fascism is. Yeah. And, and straight after, in his other books, um, he drops that terminology because uh, he wants concrete analysis and not sort of um, big uh, abstract um, terms. And Deleuze and Guattari themselves... Um, uh, drop it, but for this book, they they talk about microfascism, which is the inside. <laughs> I just well, think microaggressions, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, but probably that's why they dropped it. Yeah, yeah. Because um, um, that got taken up, and then they condemned it. They always said that uh, the micro stuff um, is the micro perception is never enough in itself because it tends to harden down into dogma and, mm. and, and so on. So um, that would be one context. If I knew people were using words like that, that I could take the accusation of fascism seriously. Mm. But then what the quote you read, so, so on that theory, you could be in favour of a fascist ideology when you talk, but just never put it into practice. Your acts would contradict your words or vice versa, or everything could be converging on the same thing or, or whatever. So um, that's why that sort of thing is a, a, a sort of, even when it's got some concrete content, you've got to be careful because it could boomerang against you. Mm. And you find that your um, identifying with uh, one of the things I don't like is identifying with minority groups. That's already um, uh, an example of, of microfascism mm. at that stage in their terminology, and, and then later uh, um, that just drops out. So I always think about uh, how how there's a story um, <clears throat> I covered on Reading Short and Deep uh, by Steve Allen. Um, it's called The Public Hating. And it's about um, ah yes. Uh, did you hear that show? Yeah, it's an interesting yes. story. 
Um, it's it's I think it's a McCarthy. It's about McCarthy and McCarthyism, and uh, you know you could throw uh, that like insult down at people. You know, you McCarthyite. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, uh, but the problem is, is I don't think it has as, you know, like some words are just better to say. Fuck is a really good word, right? It's fun to say. Asshole. That's a fun word to say, but McCarthyism is not as fun to say as, uh, The problem is if you say McCarthyite as an insult, yeah. you're hating in saying it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh, but I just, I think about how, um, you know, we, we're rhyming in our time, with you know uh, the witch hunt for Russians, <laughs> like the Russians under every rock. And if you listen to the state media or the, sorry, the corporate media, which is, I mean, there's another definition of fascism is when the the corporations get a hold of, and control of the government, right? Um, that's another way of going for fascism, rather than you know. Uh, I don't know, bundles of sticks and stuff like that. Um, I, I do want to relate an anecdote I thought was pretty interesting. Um, on the 28th of this month, August, uh, I got a random tweet at me saying, uh, at SFFADA, you really need to get off the socialist propaganda train. You've read <laughs> enough dystopia, dystopian sci-fi to know it ends in death. And I'm like, I think he's like talking about like... Um, uh, you know, like, uh, what's that? Uh, Russia, uh, I mean, don't you think it is like um, gulags, Russian gulags, or maybe Maoist? Is that what he's thinking? Because I don't think that there's. Did a you lot know of- the communists killed a million billion people? <laughs> well, they did, but I don't think they did it because they're communists exactly. I think doing it because they had an autocratic leader who was uh, basically not questioned and, uh, you know, lots of bad stuff. But more importantly, you're wrong. every single person who died in China from 1945, 1949 to now is a victim of communism. <laughs> I, re- I, 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 I said, um, I replied, I try to avoid propaganda, reading it or making it. Is there something specific you think I'm falling for? Like, I was like, what tweet is it like that I tweeted that he saw that? Um, and he says, Lol, nothing specific. I see many posts recently regarding socialism. Seem like you might have been drinking the Kool-Aid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I said, without specifics, I guess I'll just have to guess at what you mean by socialism. For example, if you mean government-insured healthcare and fire departments, I like these things. If you mean giving corporations and banks license to milk taxpayers, I'm not a fan. Um, and it says, and then I said, your profile has a lot of things, and a dude I think are good ideas and have good ideas though i will admit i don't play uh a world of warcraft um i'm not down with the ancient astronauts <laughs> except in fiction also i do don't like kool-aid too much sugar not enough flavor um he's he his profile had um uh libertarian which is always dangerous because it means you're very young yeah. or uh very naive on the oh, other wow. hand uh, sustainable living, that's good. Permaculture, that sounds good. Legalized marijuana, I think we need to be careful, but absolutely don't want it to be criminalized. Atheist, seems reasonable to me. Ron Paul, you know what? I've got way more many politicians I hate than him. He's actually, re- his son's terrible. He's a lot better. He's quite a good uh American politician. Comics, yay. Video games, Warcraft, not so much. 
ancient astronauts and 4K movies. Um, so I think that for him, uh, this guy's name is uh, Devilish uh, at Devilish Damned or King of Wishful Thinking. I think he thinks of socialist as uh, not quite. Uh, it's not like a swear word, but. You know, it's like my little uh, student I had once. He just loved saying the word Trump because it got a huge reaction, right, from everybody he he would meet. And I said, you're allowed to say Trump, but you can't say it as much as you're saying it <laughs> just because you're disrupting the class. Right? <laughs> uh, because, you know, he's eight years old or whatever, and, and he doesn't know much about Trump. Right, he doesn't follow politics, but he knows that it's a power word and it makes people angry. Just like the word fascist is a power word and makes people angry. I watched the video of Janet Ng giving that uh, speech, and when she said uh, "fucking fascist," there was a huge reaction. Right? Um, if she said he was problematic, <laughs> I don't think that there would have been a, um, uh, as much of a reaction. Uh, but I also don't like the word problematic myself because I think it's a problematic word. <laughs> problematic, it sounds objective when it's, yeah, it's yeah, your yeah. point of view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It means uh, there's problems that I'm not going to go into, right? That I find, and but everyone should find. Uh, well, no, we all objectively find, right? Yeah. We know that there are problems. So if I say... Um, Terrence, you're very problem. Uh, no, no, your personality is problematic. <laughs> it's like a worse insult than fascist because I'd spend a week worrying about it. Right, exactly, a exactly. Uh, so I, I don't think your personality is problematic. I, I find your tweets problematic because I, I'm like, what does this mean? Because <laughs> I don't read all the books you're reading, so I don't know what what the hell it means. But I'm like, oh, it sounds like it means something. <laughs> ah, thank you. <laughs> My, my my tweets are, are um, most you're of them. working out your ideas, I think. Working out my ideas and preparing to write them together in, a, in yeah, an yeah, essay yeah. that I'll call a post on a blog. Yeah, yeah. I, I wrote one about um, a, a sort of a tweet thread about old, um, old pulp magazines and not specifically wow. science fiction magazines. Um, and I got a good reaction. Um, but it, it's really jumbled. Like, if it was an essay, it couldn't be structured that way. It was just like, oh, here's some pictures, and I, this is an observation I made. And just basically saying there was a ton of genres um, that nobody thinks about. And, you know, we, we all heard of Westerns, right? Everybody knows about Westerns. And, and if you're old enough, you know, there was a ton of Western TVs and movies, TV shows and movies, and, um, you know... There's a Max Brand, you know, there's a bunch of Western novels. But nobody thinks about railroad fiction. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of railroad fiction, and there was a lot of, um, like, weird genre, like sports novels, like sports yeah. fiction. And, and it, it went off, like, romance, romance is, is a genre and still around. Um, if you look at the romance novels, right, uh, or the romance fiction uh, magazines, they're, all the bylines are women, right? Um, if you look at uh, the science fiction magazine, most of the bylines are men. Some of them are indeterminate because it's, you know, uh, initials. Um, and some, sometimes women did use male pseudonyms. Um, but in Weird Tales, uh, a good percentage, not, you know, half, probably about 
20% were women, um, and there was w- probably more women represented in the poetry. Um, so the fact that, you know, John W. Campbell was a gatekeeper, like, I was thinking, gatekeepers, is there such a thing anymore? Like, Paul wrote a tweet um, about uh, lists not having women, or maybe it was people of color, uh, on it. I'm like, well, I don't think he's direct. This wasn't directed at me. It was just a tweet, right? But I was thinking, well, I have this PDF page, and it's full of things, and I don't keep track or even try and put a certain percentage of women on there. I don't. I I can't keep track of the uh, of the of the um, race of the people. I think it's a mistake to do so. On the other hand, um, with the costs so low, right? of making a website or a blog or a podcast now, can there be such a thing as a gatekeeper um, unless you're Google or something like that? Is this idea of gatekeepers even valid? What do you guys think? I'm turning this into a whole other podcast, aren't I? <laughs> That's a good one. What, what do you think? Is, there, is, that, is that a... Like, if you're a, a publisher, right? Uh, like Ace... And you dominate the science fiction market. That makes you a very powerful force, or Tor, or something like that. But you could, starting up a new press, right, or new magazine is a is quite a production if you're um, if you're just a individual. But if you're just publishing it on your website, um, is is that a gatekeeper thing? Is I don't know. If you want tenure in 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 there labor you history, you better publish through. Yeah, the University of North Carolina Press. Right. So there's a gatekeeper right, there. Right, right, That makes sense. People um, who make and break careers. Right. But, yeah, I think you're right that there's plenty of spaces for people to to make use of to get their their ideas out. But, but uh, no, like online now. I, Paul's, yeah. I think, was he was talking about, he didn't have a link, so and he's not here to explain. But basically, um, if you've got a list of 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 authors and you're not including um so uh, like I like Ursula Le Guin I don't she's not my favorite she but I, I think she's written a few uh good novels that I I really enjoy um but I can't think of a you know I I have serious problems with Margaret Atwood's writing other than uh well it's not even her writing just her <laughs> um uh you know, so if you if you twist my arm and say come up with a list of of modern or living women, or almost recently living women authors in science fiction or fantasy, I would be very hard pressed to find a, a list of twenty, right? Um, but it, uh, but I I don't feel like I'm ex uh, I'm excluding people because it's just my reading tastes and the gatekeeper on my website is just me. And it's not like I pay money, so I can't make or break people's careers. Can I be a gate? Can I be considered a gatekeeper? I don't think I can. Maybe you're a, a sub, sub, sub gate, gatekeeper. Well, a- say again. You shouldn't be making lists that's. I agree. Order. I agree. On the other hand, my web, my podcast is a list, right? And when I, oh, I yeah, when I, I did uh, reading short and deep, Eric wanted to get a certain. Uh, well, he wanted to have women represented. And uh, it was hard. It's harder to find women than it is to find men. On the other hand, I did um, 
find uh, this author who I really like, called Maria Morosky, where we've done two stories or three. We're going to do another one. Um, and I guess by pushing and looking, uh, I found more women writers. But honestly, I don't really care that she's a woman. I care that the stories are good and that, you know, like it's that the author is good, not that her gender is good. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, well, I've had the same thing on my blog. People have um, uh, sent me um, messages on Twitter or, or Facebook saying, once again, you've given uh, a list of uh, four uh, wide European men and you haven't talked about any women with no explanation, uh, just sort of uh, uh, putting the accusing finger at me. Mm. But maybe there's something to be said for the fact that we've been conditioned and um, by following our tastes, we're going to follow sort of uh, a pre-guided path and that we should make an effort on ourselves um, to look and see if we could like something else um, on the more uh, bending the stick. There's the idea that the stick is bent too far in it's not a normal stick. The stick is bent too far in, uh, to the left and we should bend it um, excessively to the right to get to a, a stick that doesn't have to care whether it's men or, or women. But I, uh, I don't feel the necessity, um, in my case, for my interest, to make... I, I think it's something you should keep in mind, but I don't feel mm-hmm. the necessity to make a, an extra big effort uh, of reading and commenting uh, women authors. Mm-hmm. So the re- the way I found uh, Maria Morosky is by fa- by I was trying to track down the idea of the Spider Woman. <laughs> my my brain process is pretty interesting because it I can sort of track it sometimes. So uh, there was a few years ago there was a a Lego minifigure series. I collect the Lego minifigures to make little uh, pieces, you know, photographs out of them, setting up little scenes from books and stuff. And they they put out a um, a bunch of monsters, you know, like Universal monsters, the mummy and the Dracula, Dracula and uh, Frankenstein's monster, and a few others, right? And I I guess they wanted to have a complete lineup, which is I don't know sixteen pieces or whatever. And so they had some ones that are sort of questionable. Well, one of them that wasn't as questionable uh, is kind of interesting. They had a tiger woman, right? Um, and there, there is actually a bunch of stories that I've, I've found and put up. Um, there's a movie called Cat People um, that's based oh, yes. on uh, on a weird tale story, and um, put that one up. And then um, I thought of this idea of the Spider Woman because I have this little minifigure who's a little woman with a spider, and she's got a spider in her hair, and her her clothes have spiders on it, right? So I went looking, and I found a story called The Spider Woman by Seabury Quinn, but I'm not a Seabury Quinn reader. <laughs> um, and then I saw one uh, by somebody I'd never heard of called Maria Morosky, Um and it was short, which is very important for me. I think it had an illustration. And I read it, and I'm like, wow, this is really interesting. And is this the origin of this idea of sort of the, uh, you know, you've got Dracula, he's a bat, he's a wolf, right? You've got the werewolf. You've got the mummy, all these sort of monster, iconic monsters. The Spider Woman, I mean, there's a movie called The Kiss of the Spider Woman, right? Um, there's a Marvel character called Spider uh, Spider Woman, right, based on Spider-Man. Um, 
where did this come from? And it, it's actually a really interesting story and fun. But it wasn't because I, I was looking for a female. <laughs> and I don't think... Uh, and yet, um, it is interesting because I don't think that that one, a story could have been written as well or as easily uh, by a man because it's a, about a woman. Um, I feel like it's a very uh, Maria Morovsky's own story, like Philip K. Dick's own story, right? So uh, there is something to it, um, you know, but uh, that's also not a science fiction story. It's a fantasy story. Um, it's actually uh, sort of set on the sequel to Dracula being filmed, which is interesting. So, I don't know. Gatekeepers, fascists. We got a show pretty much here. Maybe I'll tack it on to the end of a podcast. Did you record it? Oh, yeah. Oh. I think so. Well, I, I'm, doing this whole, I'm starting this series on women writers. Is it, is it liberal guilt? Yes. It's because uh, you're a crypto fascist. <laughs> I don't even know what that means, but uh, it sounds like an insult word that people throw around, right? What's I know what cryptography is. I'm still only doing writers I like. I yeah. did try reading Edith Wharton, and she drove me mad. Yeah, that's what you said. So I, I jumped to someone I like, Willa Cather. Yeah, and but you called them girls, and that that means you're sexist. American girls. Well, there, there, isn't there that there mag, mag, maga, 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 whatever Japanese comic book, 20th century <laughs> boys? Okay. I don't know. It's, I think there, there definitely is 20th century boys as a thing. It's You've a made a list uh, uh, on your podcast, and it doesn't include enough women or g- gender-fluid people, and therefore you're an evil person and a fascist. I don't know any gender-fluid American writers. Uh, <laughs> I I I don't think that uh, that phenomenon is well enough in my mind to even say other than uh, there was some there was a uh, I can't remember if it was South Park there it was something had uh, the oh it, you know what it was it was uh, Garth Ennis Garth I love Garth Ennis's writing um, he he he's the writer of the Boys um, original comics oh, which Boys yeah and you know uh, I read that whole uh, run it's very long. Um, the boys is a reaction to uh, to um, superheroes in the same way that uh, Galaxy is a reaction to Campbell, right? Mm-hmm. Campbell's got this idea um, in the future everybody needs to be uh, uh, supermen, ubermen, and uh, I want to hear about these heroic guys who are saving the galaxy who have psychic powers and and are misunderstood supermen, and they're going to conquer or whatever. And Galaxy's like, no, let's let's tell all sorts of d- different weird stories and much more satire, right? Um, which he was not a big fan uh, of in terms of you know, mm-hmm. he had a few humorous stories in in there, but it was not his main focus. Um, uh, Garth Ennis literally hates soups. He calls them soups, and so. He's and yet he's a comics books writer, right? He he, um, it's all he he doesn't write novels, right? He doesn't write short stories. He only writes comics, um, and the g- genre or the medium is completely dominated. Here, I've, I've got a quote here: "Superheroes are the perfect fantasy of a, of hope and empowerment for a world that increasingly lacks either." Personally, not having grown up with superheroes, I find them completely moronic. <laughs> 
So he's being asked to write superheroes all the time, right, by Marvel and DC, and he's one of the top uh, in my comic book store. They have a section, um, you know, like there's the Superman section, and then there's a there's the DC section, and there's the Marvel section, or whatever, and then they have a section called Top Talent, right? And he's in the Top Talent. That is, you know, it, mm-hmm. uh, when I go to the comic book store, if it has his name on it, I'd buy it, right? Um, so in the top talent section, he manages to make a career in comic books by not, even though he doesn't write superheroes. Whenever he does, he 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 fucks with it, right? Like uh, he'll do um, the, uh, the he does the Punisher, who's an anti superhero hero, right? Or he, but in any case, the boys is him. In fact, there is an analog. Uh, it's not in the first series yet, but uh, there is an analogous character to Stan Lee. Um, in there, um, and uh, it's it's incredibly interesting to to think about how important superheroes are in our reality, and yet how ridiculously stupid they are. And he does a kind of um, a very thoughtful and powerful argument against that fantasy. In the, yeah, in I, I, I like the TV show. Maybe mm-hmm. I should pick up the comic. Um, so I guess it, he adds the moronic thing because uh, what's his face? The guy who wrote the big fat book I read, Jerusalem. Oh, Moore. Alan Moore, Moore, yeah, yeah. Moore did the uh, the fascist thing, right? That basically these superheroes will be fascist, right? And and they're very but, they're but similar. This guy seems to add the moronic. I I really like that addition to it because mm-hmm. the, the characters in the Watchmen aren't moronic. They're not preposterous, and you know. In quite no, the same way, they no. appear in the place. He said, At least he, I only watch a TV show, though. So, uh, Garth Ennis's take is that um, they're evil and comedic, right? But if yeah. you if you have super if you have superpowers, you're going to abuse your superpowers, right? And and the the viewpoint character, uh, I can't remember her name, but she's um, in the comic book. It, that's the other great thing about comics is they can be far more explicit, like that. Um, uh, in the first, uh, I don't know if it's the first episode. Starlight, I think, is her name. She, oh, yes. she, she. Did you watch this series? Yes, and I've read the the first run of the comics, but right. I uh, okay. watched the whole series. Right. So uh, that that reveal, what happens to her? Um, it's uh, a Me Too story, like really bad Me Too story, right? Um, in the um, in the TV show, it's almost it's almost consensual. It's it's not good. But um, it's basically um, she's raped in the in the actual comic book, and uh, you don't like it doesn't linger on it, but it definitely uh, lingers on the idea that these are fucking assholes, right? These are really bad people, um, and uh, the motivation for the quote unquote boys is to get back at the soups for what what what's actually going on. That's that's the critique I always say, you know. Batman only makes sense when you're a little kid and don't realize that when you punch people in the head or, or like the A-team, right? They run around every week and shoot guns at other, other people, never killing them, shooting their tires out, their car flips over, and then there's a scene explicitly showing the guy crawling out of the car, right? He, he was not killed. Like, you cannot just shoot guns around at people and not have actual people killed and maimed and horribly, terribly wounded, right? Like that... That that uh, that scene from Austin Powers, right? That's uh, 
when he uh, guy gets thrown into a pit and he's supposed to be flash burned by Doctor Evil, and he says, "I'm not dead," right? That that sort of that uh, meta moment where it's like, "Oh, James Bond stories <laughs> are actually <laughs> much." Hey, there there's a fact for you. James Bond stories are kind of more fascist. <laughs> If you think about it, because they they don't regard uh, villains as actual human beings, right? <laughs> or the guards working for the villains, they don't know that, right? There's kind of something going on there. But, um, yeah, I, 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 I really like the dynamic because Alan Moore takes takes the idea of superheroes as, um, this is what what would the government do with them, right? And the boy says, what would superheroes do themselves and and corporate america right corporate, at least that's what yeah. the tv show emphasizes yep. that no that's it's time. it's very much uh yeah it's it's it, they become franchises and things that's mm-hmm. i thought it was i i really enjoyed that series i hope yeah, they it's, keep it's that good. going I, I i don't know i don't remember how it pays off it's been so long since i read it but Definitely. Are, are we doing Watchmen? I brought my Watchmen. Yeah, to, so I want to. I want to. I want to do it, but I'm afraid of watching that. H, the HBO version looks like they're doing something else with it. It didn't look very close, but maybe we should just wait a little bit and see. Uh, because if it is a good adaptation, I wouldn't mind watching it. What do you think? We can do some. That's a bigger threat than anything. <laughs> I'm afraid of that book. I want to. I want to hear. I want to hear your thoughts on it. I, I finished it. I. I, I think it's. I think he's trying to do a lot of a lot of shit in that book. <laughs> Does he succeed? And, well, how many well, people oh, finished that? Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't want to hear your opinion. I want to hear your star rating out of a hundred stars. <laughs> Please compare it to Moby Dick out of a hundred stars. Moby Dick is what seventy-one uh, stars. <laughs> yeah, Moby Dick has seventy-one stars. <laughs> Jerusalem has fewer stars. <laughs> I'm not sure how much fewer. The biggest stars. I want to read it again. That's the thing. I don't yeah, want to yeah. really read it again. <laughs> I. I I don't know. Uh, no, I don't want a star rating. I was joking. He's, he's trying to do Joyce. I don't know. I, uh, yeah, that's. I, I just love it as a as a look into this community. That was the best mm-hmm. parts. Mm-hmm. I really just this close study throughout time of this community. Those were the best parts for me. I think you but, should uh, read Mockingbird. You you weren't in on that show. Um, Terrence, Terrence and I were. Yeah, by Walter Tevis. I keep okay. thinking about it. Uh, we only did that two weeks ago, but uh, I keep thinking about that book, and I was telling other people they should read it. Uh, it's it's a I th- the it's a post scarcity, uh, post uh, capitalism um, oh, meditation nice. on uh, uh, I don't know something. Tell tell them what it's about, Terrence. <laughs> I don't know. It's really good. It's really, it's really. It's a masterpiece. I, I think it's a masterpiece. Yeah. If you thought this one was a, if you thought, uh, uh, I think I, I, I talent was a masterpiece. I, I'll send you a copy. No, I think a lot of. Uh, I don't. I guess I don't. 
I don't, I'm not too hard on the things I read. Maybe I'm too soft on things. Ah, uh, well, you just read some shit. You, you try and re- you know when you you get a book in the mail. <laughs> this is what used to be my problem. I get a book in the mail and I say I'll do a review on this, which means I read it, right? And nobody else has read it yet because it hasn't been reviewed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'm reading stuff. And then I'm reading and I'm like, so oh my god, good. this book is terrible. Here, let me tell you all the ways it's terrible, and it's be- mostly it's because. It's not for me, right? It's it, it's a science fiction romance, right? And like, well, I don't like romance. And why is she spending all? I'm thinking of a different book right now, but why is she, why is she spending so much time with these horses? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she's learning to ride, and she's getting on a different horse. And now she's, you know, like those. Are the, there are books that are they're probably perfectly acceptable for people, but they're just not for you, right? But if you get uh like like if if I if you like Brave New World and you like uh, This Perfect Day by Ira Levin and you like 1984, you're going to like Mockingbird. And the fact that I hadn't heard of Mockingbird until very recently tells you uh, nothing because I was like shocked that this book was published in 1980 and was not on my radar because it definitely needs to be on more people's radar. Really good. I'll send you. I'll send you the audiobook here. It's, I, I don't think you can do a show on it, right? That's your problem. You've, you've limited yourself. It's not in the Library <laughs> of America. Hmm. All right. Well, at least I'll listen to your episode on it. Oh, it's going to be 10 weeks or so. <laughs> yeah. Derek Robinson. So he, was the, he did Transmetropolitan. That was the artist. He's right? the artist, yeah. I like that. Uh, he works all. Uh, they worked a lot together. I think. Now, I'm not. I'm not a uh, addicted to artists until I find one that's bad, and then I don't like. If Garth Ennis is paired with somebody, it doesn't really matter who it is. Mm-hmm. But then, uh, you know, he did a couple like, oh my god, this is terrible. But if it's just, you know. Um, did you ever read uh, the Alan Moore series that um, uh, Garth Ennis started? Um, there's a series called um, Crossed, which is sort of a zombie apocalypse, but not zombies. Have you ever, ever seen this? No, I haven't read that. Okay, so Crossed, C-R-O-S-S-E-D. Um, Alan, uh, not Alan Moore. Um, Garth Ennis is also um, kind of anti-Christian. Um, growing up in Belfast, I guess uh, he had some reason to think that they were uh, uh, pox on both their houses. Um, and so he uh, he comes up with this idea of a zombie apocalypse. Um, but instead of zombies, you're still alive. You're just infected with a disease. And what it does it, is it, it puts a cross on your face. So, you know, from top to bottom and left to right, um, that sort of boils or something. And that's an indication to all your enemies that you, uh, all the people around you, that you're infected. Um, and it doesn't uh, make you an idiot or a zombie exactly. And it, you don't eat the human flesh, except you do everything possibly evil that comes into your mind. So you, you think, oh, you know, my, 60s, my sister's kind of sexy. You're going to do something about that. You have no restraint, right? You think, um, I'm getting kind of hungry, and more importantly, it would be really cruel to, uh, to uh, 
uh, see that baby um, thrown under a tire. Um, and so you do that, right? There's absolutely, because we all have thoughts that are just pop into our heads. And I say, what the fuck do you think? That's, <laughs> I'm not even going to think about that. That's terrible, right? I assume you guys have those thoughts because uh, I believe there's a whole tradition of things called sin and that sort of thing. And actual bad behavior that humans have done. I'm not the only one who has bad thoughts, right? <laughs> um, no comment. <laughs> and then the, all the good parts of you and the restraints. Um, so pleasure, giving pleasure and receiving pleasure are now only involved with pain, right? So you get pleasure from getting pain and you get pleasure from giving pain. And the only thing that makes your – well, the – the thing that makes your life a delight, your very short life a delight, is uh, giving pain, mental pain and physical pain, to everybody. And so the stories that are set in the crossed universe, if there is such a thing, uh, are about those people trying to avoid being becoming the crossed and having to deal with them, right? Um, and if, if you get, like... If if you get their semen on you or your spit or blood, you become infected, and and so that's the setup, right? Um, and Garth Ennis is uh, he's just unrelenting. You you've read Terrence, you've read uh, the boys. That's very mild, yes. right? Ah, <laughs> that's very mild. Crossed it is like when you're reading it, it's like, uh oh. <laughs> then you turn the page, and oh no. Oh no! It's like the worst thing you can possibly imagine, right? Oh yeah. Like there's a guy having sex with a dolphin's blowhole. It's like why? <laughs> why is this in here? Oh! And then you know that's the monstrous thing. And then you know, the the people are being hunted down by these cruel monsters, right? It's it's terrible. But what's interesting is the series goes on and on, and Garth Ennis stops writing it eventually. Basically, you don't need to read it anymore. But then Alan Moore for some reason, decided to write a series called Crossed Plus 100. So it's 100 years later in the same universe of Crossed. Um, so 100 years of people having been infected. And uh, each chapter in the uh, series of Crossed Plus 100, it's like 12 issues, I think, is named after a science fiction novel. Um, oh, yes. And uh, he deals sort of... I mean, it's interesting. Let's see if I can bring it up. Plus, plus 100. There it is. And then uh, other writers, I think, took over after that because it's a, it's a very... Um, a very... Uh, hmm. Good selling. <laughs> and it also has good art, although you're kind of upset by the fact that it has good art. Uh, I don't see. Hmm. I'll see if I... I must have tweeted about this. Lost. Yeah. So, um, Cross Plus 100 Volume 2 uh, references Matheson, Stapledon, Haldeman, Moorcock, and Pohl. And, uh, oh, it's because the main uh, character is, uh, she's a librarian, kind of, and her job is to collect books after 100 years, right? Oh, and the other amazing thing about this 
is when you read it is it it it's kind of reads like um uh clockwork orange they've made their own uh language so oh, yes. i'll just read a page here i've read similar in wishful fictions literators like olaf staple the don in his published publishes all the tomorrows all the ages of people kind are gristled down to a to a fuck few pages my encyclopedia encyclopedia calls it hard sci-fi and sci-fi spelled s-i-s-i-g-h-f-i and oh sweet brown it is it is hard (laughs) um so uh when reading it you're reading like the she's writing in her own language but she's reading ancient science fiction uh, and then there's a background story, of course, the plot and stuff, which involves the evolution of the crossed from these monsters uh, of unrepentant pain giving to a more, uh, I'm going to do uh, what you did for me earlier um, and help you by telling you the secret. Um, the crossed have developed the ability to restrain their, their pleasures, which is giving pain, Um uh, over a period of time, right, so that they can infiltrate the human human civilization, so they can give more pain. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, she's she's got a copy of the Forever War, um, and of course, Cross Plus One Hundred is set a hundred years after uh, this war started between humans and and the uh, the Crossed. It's it's pretty interesting. It's a weird. It's a weird. Div- yeah, a scanner darkly is one of the chapters. So um, it's a it's a very interesting meta phenomenon, uh, and it's a mutation <laughs> of the original crossed. So if you haven't read a lot of Garth Ennis, I do highly highly recommend him. He's very. I don't read too much comics. Oh, he's good. He's good. Kind of uh, expensive. I don't know. Oh, it is an expensive hobby for sure. But if you get it in trades, um, it's it's mm-hmm. actually quite reasonable. It's about twenty bucks per, right? If you buy it individual comics, it, it can be pricey. I, I, like I know this website that has them all, but it's oh no, I'm not. I I, like I, I the need paper lot reading them online. I, no, I like the paper version. I need the I need the copies. Yeah. And libraries are so. Like libraries are collecting more of comics, even in China, but they'll have like the middle three trades of a long series. So mm-hmm. too much with it. They don't. They don't. They don't seem to buy them systematically. Like the buyers don't know what they're doing. They got. A, they librarians got a lot of books to cover, and it's unfortunate yeah. that uh, comics aren't aren't the number one thing. I think they think. Yeah, I think when they, they buy them. They seem to buy them more randomly, and that's been my experience. I think that they also don't think that um, that it, they think it's for uh, just the kids. Mm-hmm. But the majority of people who buy comics now are adults, for sure. I mean, there's teens for sure buying manga and stuff like that. But whatevs. I guess we're pretty close to done. Yeah. Done for a second time. <laughs> Okay, let me look at the schedule and make sure I don't uh, misinform or fail to inform you of what's going on. Okay, so apparently we're doing City of Endless Night next. <laughs> yeah. Better organize that. Um, that's on Audible. Uh, you're not in that, that one, Evan, for some reason. 
Endless Night. City of Endless Night by Milo Hastings. Yeah. Um, how long is it? Uh, good question. City. It can't be that long. Endless Night. LibriVox. And the answer to that is... It is... It's on nine, LibriVox to me, not Audible. Uh, it's on Audible as well, but 9.40. 9 hours, 40 minutes. Um, I think I saw it on the... Uh, yeah, says I see an Audible one for 10 hours, 46 minutes. Oh, that's Preston and Child. That's not... That's oh, just, no, it's not the right one. Oh, yes, yeah. sorry. Yeah. I'll uh, edit up the audio for that probably tomorrow. Um, All right. And you I'll, can send it to me. I'll yeah. try. Yeah. It's 1919, so it should be good. And they... Early example of dystopian science fiction. Yeah, Sounds I'm done with that. All right. Okay, I'm going to put you on there. And then the elf trap. Terrence. Oh, oh no, I put Terrence on twice, and I spelled Terrence wrong again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hey, Evan, how do you pronounce your last name? Lampy. What? I just assumed it was Lamp. And I Me thought too. That- German heritage. So. Ah, so I, I, I was, I was scoffing at the guys on the uh, David, David Agronoff, I guess. So yeah, he always says Lamp- Evan Lampy. What, the, what a fool! <laughs> guess who's the fool? <laughs> I just never asked. <laughs> then I thought, well, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Oh, maybe I heard you say it on your, your, uh, your. They see, they, I think they, they, they. Uh... They sort of uh, slandered me or something. Like what? They were interviewing Lisa Yazek about the Futurist Female book, uh-huh. and something about me making the claim that that they like women writers, were, <laughs> women writers were were faking as men, and somehow I got associated with that idea. Like C.L. Moore, like the name was to to hide her, her gender. And I never said anything like that. Uh, yeah, but, I don't. I don't even know if that's true. Like, um, there well, are, uh, says it wasn't true that there was a few examples of it, but mostly for hmm. professional reasons. Like, they had other jobs. They didn't want their real boss to they, know that they, they were have, uh, At least uh, it I wasn't think, that they were that there were women, and and that was the ethics point. But somehow they associated me with. I don't remember ever saying anything like that. Uh, I I think I heard that episode and. It, I don't remember it being uh, uh, a, a, a slander, but maybe you heard it closer than I. Well, no, so, they, they were misremembering what I said, I think. That's possible. They give star ratings, so they, they can't be uh, as brilliant as I am, because you, you, be you have to be right not to... Uh, uh, science they, do all, they do know all the publishing background of all those Philip Dick novels. That's useful stuff. Uh, there's... Uh, there's, I never uh, care about it, like who his editor was or whatever. Well, you know, the, they've got a serious problem with their show, which is they derail it all the time, which I, I, I try not to do. But um, I, at least <laughs> some, sometimes, sometimes I think it's actually useful uh, to talk around a subject. But the, the, one of their guys lit, like, seeming deliberately wants to ruin the show. Mm. Um, not the I think David Avergonov is the guy who... He's most active, and uh, he's not trying to ruin the show, but he's got some problems uh, with his other 
South of Gas. I thought that man, like, it seems such a hassle to get people together to do a podcast. It's easier just to turn on my computer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But you're good at it. I'm not going to be able to find people who want to read fucking Willa Cather's death. (laughs) It's hard enough to find people to read uh, City of Endless Night, yo. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Or World of Talent. (laughs) 